Greetings, Earthlings. I am Kang. Do not be frightened. We mean you no harm. You speak English! I'm speaking Comic-Con-ese. By coincidence, our languages are exactly the same. But what are you going to do with us, bad? We're taking you to the land of San Diego Comic-Con, a world of infinite delights to tantalize your senses and challenge your intellect. It's our pleasure to provide you with entertainment on your journey. We get over a million podcasts from the far reaches of the galaxy. Do you get HBO? No, that would cost extra. And over here is our crowning achievement in amusement technology. They call it, Hey, that's just the Batman universe and Batgirl the Oracle. Get with the times, man. We did build this spaceship. Anyone that has mastered intergalactic travel, raise your hand. All right, then. Time for the show. How come you guys never podcast? Oh, we wouldn't want to spoil our appetite for the commentary when we land at San Diego Comic-Con. Ooh, a commentary. Will we be invited? Oh, you'll be at the commentary. I have a feeling you'll be the guests of honor. It's a beautiful country out here. A frog and a bear seeing America. Moving right along in search of good times and good news. With good friends you can't lose. This could become a habit. Opportunity knocks once, let's reach out and grab it. Yeah. Together we'll nab it. We'll hitchhike bus or yellow cabin. Cabin? Moving right along. Foot loose and fancy free. Getting there is half the fun, come share it with me. Moving right along. Dum-dum-dum-dum-dum. We'll learn to share the load. We don't need a map to keep this show on the road. Hey, Fozzie, I want you to turn left if you come to a fork in the road. Yes, sir, turn left at the fork in the road. Permit! I don't believe that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe. I am Dustin, and I am here with, uh, right now, Josh and Stella. We are bringing you from the Batman Universe interviews and back with Oracle. We are Both feeds are bringing you a, a special episode of a recap of all of our interviews that we conducted at San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, I was the man behind the curtain. He's Oz. At, yeah, behind, back here at uh, TBU headquarters while Don, <laughs> Stella, and Josh were both, or were all three of them were at Comic-Con uh, working on getting interviews. Um, you may have noticed that we didn't really post a lot of interviews to the site. Well, it's because we're bringing you this specific episode. So with that, uh, we're going to run through a lot of different stuff. I mean, we did a lot of different interviews at Comic-Con. When I say we, I mean they. I wasn't there. I give all the props to uh, my staff who was at Comic-Con, uh, Stella, Don, and Josh, who came out at the last minute to help out with TBU. So... We have a ton of stuff, including we have some talk about uh, Batman 66. We've got talk about Batman Ar- Assault on Arkham, Lego Batman 3, uh, Gotham, as well as a number of comic creator interviews, including Brian Buccioletto, Scott Snyder, Mark Draco, Peter Tomasi, James Tinian, Tim Seeley, and Tom King. So hopefully you can sit back. You'll have a chance to listen to this. Um, as we're recording this, uh, this we already know that this is, is going to, in fact, be a long episode. So we apologize if you're looking for a short episode. Go check out one of our other podcasts, maybe a commentary. It's only about 30 minutes long, if that. Otherwise, sit back and enjoy all of the 
awesomeness that uh, we got for you at San Diego Comic-Con. Or pretend that this is a 10-part short episode and pause <laughs> it every, every 10 minutes. All right, so the first thing we're going to talk about is Lego Batman 3. Um, Stella and Don both had a chance to kind of look at the gameplay of the game. So what I want to know from you guys is what about the game excites you the most? Bat cow. <laughs> um, what was great is uh, obviously they already had a bunch of characters unlocked just with the, the, the level that we were allowed to play. And it was very seamless to just switch in between. And the variety of characters was just amazing. And when he popped up that that menu and I saw Bat cow there, I thought, oh, that is amazing. Uh, I know that a lot of players potentially were a little frustrated just with the fact that if you needed a new suit, you had to go to this special little area and get that new suit. And it's actually all in, in sort of your little menu area. So, you, again, you can just seamlessly... Uh, change into that particular suit. I, I think it seems like it may be a better game than the second one. Obviously, the open world is not really there as much just because it is such a huge setting, being in space and all these different worlds that you, can, you can't go that big. Uh, but, you know, they did let us know that the, the player's freedom is still intact. And there was even this one section that I got to play where I was in a, I believe I was in, I was playing Batman in a ship, and I'm sort of flying around the the JLA watchtower and destroying bombs that were kind of floating around. It reminded me of Galacta or some Galaga. What was that called? Gal Galaga. Galaga. Yeah, sorry. So yeah, there were just the, the wealth of characters. The amount of research that they put into these characters and and really looking into the comics. There's at one point I asked one of the creators, you know what sort of comics did you use? And he said anything and everything. And there's a finishing move that Plastic Man has where he turns into a toilet and like dunks the the bad guy in it. And, and that actually came from very early, just one panel from a very early Plastic Man. So just to know that they were looking through all this material and they really wanted to give the players the freedom to, to use any character to a certain extent that they wanted to and, and to keep everything as big as a second one, even though it's not open world. I think it, it should just be uh, really great. And, you know, the Green Lanterns are in, so it's just a huge cast, and I think that's what people are really going to be pumped about with this game. Yeah, really, the, the one of the other things, uh, we're not going to get into a lot of the actual news. You can check out the website for a lot of the news related to We're specifically talking about interviews, the, the Lego Batman demo um, here on this pot, on this episode, but as far as just something else related to Lego Batman 3, on Sunday they announced an entire lineup of Batman 66 characters. Um, Adam West was in attendance um, for the panel, and they announced that uh, there's going to be a whole line of Batman, char Batman 66 characters, Batman Robin, uh, 66 versions of Riddler, Joker, Penguin, and Catwoman, as well as Batgirl. She's also going to be in the game in yeah. her 66 form. Um, so it's kind of cool to see those. We've got the screenshots of the those characters over on the website for you to check out. Um, but the, the, it really just seems like the biggest thing, like you said, is that they are basically making more and more characters. Every single one of these games has seen, has seemed to grow larger and larger and larger with the amount of characters that you can play. And the fact that they have you know power sets for all these characters, it's insane because it almost feels like because it's Lego and it's such simple design when you think about it, 
the they, they can put all this effort into creating a gazillion characters that you can play as because there's there's not you're still having a definitive story. It's not you know this giant open world thing where you're playing with a gazillion characters. So I think I I honestly look forward to the games just to see the Lego versions of these characters who have never even necessarily had a Lego version of them created prior to the game. So I think that's really cool too. So we're going to jump into some interviews that we did. The first one we've got is with uh, the game director, Arthur Parsons. So take a listen at this one. Lego Batman 3, uh, to me it's like, you know, alternate times have been DC in space. How does that come to that decision to take everything from Gotham, from the DC universe to outer space? What was that like? Well, it was great. It was kind of a natural progression. We, we, we knew with Lego Batman 2, that's what we wanted to do next. Uh, we had Brainiac turn up at the end, and, and he had that line of, like, I have located it. He's after the Greenland. Right. So we, we kind of, like, go, yeah, okay, we'll follow that story on. Because we've done Open World Gotham, to, to, to basically go and do the same thing again, it's not what we It's not what the Lego games are about. We try and make sure every one has something new and fresh about it. Um, so the, the natural thing is, you know what? We know that we were bringing Brainiac in. We know that we're going to go to space. Uh, and Brainiac's coming to shrink Earth. So there's a logical reason why we can't go back to Um And then we're going to go out, and we've never explored the Lantern world. So places like, you know, uh, Ismol or Akara or Zamoron, you know, these are places that, as far as I'm aware, have never been fully, like, realized in a video game. So to be able to do that in the context of the story we've got is just epic. You know, we need to go big on, a, on, on every scale, you know, character roster-wise, level-wise, open world-wise. You know, let's just, let's just go big with Lego Batman. So was it the logical inclusion, you know, bigger, you know, better, more things to do? Was it just logical to bring in the three characters across with yeah, yeah, I guess that's, you know, there's a few of us in the office, me and the design team, that we always have this kind of thing where we want to do more of everything. Um, you know, Lego Batman 1 and 2, I think they probably had around about a roster of 50. And they were great, 50 great characters. Um, but for me, if, if we're going out and exploring the Lantern world, we need to bring characters associated with those areas in. We're going out and exploring, you know, uh, the Hall of Doom, um, as, as well as you know, the Watchtower. We need to bring everything together. But then we also, in comic plans, there's stuff we want to throw in there. So whether it is like bringing Batmite into the game, whether it is bringing Crypto the Superdog into the game, um, there's always things that you want to do that like haven't been done. Um, I guess it's one up Yeah, you know, we want to do like better than we did before. Um, so yeah. There's, over 150 characters from the DC universe, which I, you know, I was so excited. You know. <laughs> um, and some of those are like characters that kids don't know. You know, you love someone like Arkilo, they might not know. So, and he's a Lego big figure, and he's a Lego big figure that can fly. We've never done that before. Um, but then you've also got, you know, we've also got, yeah, Batmite's cool. Um, I, you know, I look through the roster, and being able to shape shift as Martian Manhunter is really great. Being able to take Billy Batson, and then uh, press the button, shout Shazam, turn into Shazam. All these things that, you know, kids love stuff that you haven't seen. Plastic Man being able to turn into a biplane where he double jumps. Right. Um, it just brings these characters to life. They'll, they'll know some of the characters in cartoons or comics, but they won't know every character. And it's our duty uh, as, as game developers to go, you know what, we're going to bring 
the DC universe to, to, to adults that love our games, but also to a whole new generation. And we're going to kind of educate kids on comic books, stuff that I grew up with. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm going to show you who Adam West is. A six-year-old might not know who Adam West is. I, I'm pretty much sure they wouldn't. But we're going to show you, look, this is the guy that played Batman in the 60s. He was really cool, really funny. And you know what? You can experience that in Lego. And then hopefully they'll be like, yeah, you know what? That's my mum and dad. I'll go and buy that you know, the DVD. I'll watch that. And they'll enjoy it as much as we did. It's cool. You talk about educating the, the younger players just in the comics world and everything. What sort of materials did you specifically use? Uh, pretty much everything. You know, uh, we, we've, we've done everything from watching cartoons to reading current day comics to reading, you know, really old comics. You know, just sitting in a meeting room with Jeff Johns, picking his brain. It's like... We, we leave no stone unturned. It's, it's not like it's the game of something, it, it's the game of the DC sort of like world. Um, and so myself and, and the designers, and to be fair, pretty much all the team, they all engage with whatever they can from DC, um, and that's what brings everything in. You know, some of the stuff we have to do, we have a finishing move for Plastic Man where he transforms into a toilet, grabs the bad guy, puts it down the toilet and flushes the bad guy away. <laughs> it's from a comic book that is, like, it's from one frame of one comic book, like, I think something like 1968. Um, wow. But it's that kind of digging, and you'll find those little chunks of gold. Um, so, yeah, we do research everything. What do you think was the, um, what do you think was the most difficult part of the process of, you know, just bringing everything to you? Uh, the most difficult thing is actually drawing a line. Um, you know, regardless of what machine you've got, there comes a point where you cannot fit any more characters into a game, or you cannot fit any more um, sort of like data physically on a disc. Um, and so, for us, knowing that we have all these formats and knowing we have a, a release date, the, the, the really hard line is just is just going right. Stop. As a designer, you just want to keep putting more and more and more. Yeah, this one's got an epic storyline, all the free play that everyone expects. It's got an open world with, with like lantern planets you can visit, you know, 1960s mode, a load of crazy other stuff. Um, and it's just knowing when to stop. Um, because we like to give players as much as we can, you know, value for money-wise, the LEGO games can't be beaten. Um, but yeah, we need, you know, as a, as a, I, I, luckily I have like production guys and everyone else, and they just go, oh, okay, stop. We've, we've put just about enough in here, and then we squeeze it in. All right, so that was Arthur Parsons, the game director on LEGO Batman 3. Stella, what do you think the takeaway from Arthur Parsons is? <laughs> uh, just his dedication to making this an awesome bat man lego game and stepping it up from the second one and like i said just his dedication to looking through the source material and what really stuck out at me was the fact that he really wants to educate some of those younger players and, and get them into comics and also just create this relationship between parents and children which i think is already there when they're playing the lego game but the fact that the parents are probably better versed in batman 66 and now you have batman 66 and adam west in this game and kids are going to be like well what's that and that's going to just branch off so i think this is definitely if I'm to be crude like a gateway drug um, for kids to really get into comics and more of the pop culture than just Lego Batman alright so then as far as some of the voice actors behind some of the characters uh, we did talk to Troy Baker the voice of Batman Travis Willingham the voice of Superman Laura Bailey the voice of Wonder Woman and Josh Keaton the voice of Green Lantern so let's take a listen to all those interviews holy 
they let us do another game. How, How crazy is, is that? Um, starting off things, and sure. I, I talked to you like about when you were the Joker. And, um, I saw the Arkham. Sure. Uh, you were the Joker for the universe. What's it like continuing as Batman for this universe? This is what I think is so cool about the Batman franchise, and really comic books in general, but the, specifically with Batman, because it's such a resonant thing within pop culture and nerd culture. It allows itself to be interpreted in many different ways, and each is acceptable as a standalone of itself. So the Arkham universe can live within itself and people can completely buy into that and it doesn't affect the fact that you can have something like Lego Batman come in and take away or be a derivative of. It actually informs it in some ways. It, it gets to be a fun parody of it. Uh, like when we did uh, um, uh, DC Superheroes Unite, the fact that we got to use the Tim Burton score and you know yeah. pull stuff from the 89 Batman, from Batman Begins, from the 66 Batman, I mean, that's, that's what I love about this. This really gets to borrow from all the universes. So I love it that this Batman thinks that he is the Batman. There is no other Batman. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's, it's the thing that I like most about being. I would. I probably wouldn't want to be a Batman in any other universe because I mean, coming after Kevin Conroy or anybody else that's, that's filled that, that's scary as hell. But within this universe, I am Batman. It's like that. You can do that here. That's fine. You, oh, so good. Go ahead. For, what do you think informs this version of Batman? Because this is, you know, Lego Batman is just a little more comedic and exaggerated Absolutely. version of Batman. He's the straight guy. He's the Dean Martin of the group. And you've got, like, a, a slew of Jerry Lewis's encamped about him. Um, and that's one thing that I love is that... Being Adam West. Including Adam West. Um, but the thing that, that I love about this is that all of Lego properties, they... they they have free license to parody everything. We've seen it with Lord of the Rings. We've seen it with uh, Indiana Jones. And I think it was high time, like what we did with Lego Batman 2, that we added voices to that. Because it was fun to for the longest time. But I love that they allowed us to take it even further and, and, and deliver these amazing performances. And honestly, all the comedy comes from Travis Willingham. Charlie Schlaughter kept me in stitches. Dee Bradley Baker. I mean, it is... These guys are, are, and it's old school radio play. Like the way we get to do these things is just like the way they do it in the 40s. I saw the thrilling adventure hour thing last night, which is such a throwback to like the good old classic 40s and 30s radio stuff. And this is exactly that, but we are because it's so funny and it's written flawlessly. So I just have to stand there and say, okay, just be brooding the entire time. But where were you at? Oh, you mentioned the other. Uh, Following other Batman footsteps like Kevin Conroy, so sure. do you? What do you draw on to create your version of Batman? Well, what's fun is that with this, we're owning the parody of it, so you get to completely tip the hat, you know, and thumb your nose at all these other iterations, as opposed to being afraid that someone's going to compare you to it. It's clearly you're comparing it, you know, yourself to it. So we get to pull from Adam, we get to pull from Kevin, we get to pull from Christian, we get to pull from all of these different iterations, you know, from uh, Michael Keaton. So we get to own the fact that we are letting all the fans know that they're in on the joke. What about you? A question? I was, I was about you didn't get to ask a question last time. You just put your head down on the table. Well, because you said killing joke, and that broke my heart a little bit because I look bad, Gordon. You're a little out of your element in this one because yes. you're not in Gotham City, you're in space. Right. Did that change your dialogue at all just in when you speak and how you speak and what you say? No, and what's so great is I love that's the fourth question, and that's like one of the biggest things about the game, and she was the first one to ask it. So, space, kind of in the title. Um, no, I, I think that 
You know, we, we as actors, first of all, we had a great director uh, between Arthur and J.B. Blanc, you know, these guys, and John Burton, of course. These guys are steering the ship, and they know exactly where they're going to be. And there's still a lot of stuff that's in flux while we're doing our part of the job. Um, but no, it didn't really affect anything. It was just, oh, sure, of course, why not go to space? So it was more just the, the joke about that. You, you uh, what is it called in theater? You you don't ask for the uh, laugh, you ask for the tea kind of thing. So it's just like, we play it as straight as possible and let the audience have fun. Who are you? Are you? Yeah. Shucks. Uh, What's it like? Um, so, in Assault on Arkham, you're the Joker. You're, you're, you know, you're funny, but you're also a hit killer. It's a, it's a darker movie. It's meant for an older audience. And here, you're Batman. You're the straight man. You know, just the Dark Knight. But it's meant for kids, and it's meant for a wider audience. Sure. You do more things to go into space. That kind of interesting dichotomy. How does that? How does that resonate towards an actor? Well, to me, what's great is, and again, take it back to the context that it's in within Lego. Lego is something that spans ages. You know, it, it's it's one of the oldest toys as far as like of, of this age. You know, we're not doing tops and trains anymore. But Lego span up. I mean, like I grew up with Lego, and and our kids will grow up with Lego and stuff. So it's got a broad appeal. And what I love is that they kind of carry that philosophy into what we do, so that there's jokes that people that were in the theater for, you know, Tim Burton's Batman are going to go, I remember that. Or people that just saw Dark Knight Returns or whatever, Dark Knight Rises, they're going to be like, not not Dark Knight Returns, way too old for kids. (laughs) Rises like, hey, I remember that too. So you get to blend these kind of generations together. Next question? You guys still wrapped up in my amazing answer. Go for it. Go ahead. Well, hold on, he has to ask a question. Fight to the death. (laughs) Sure. Dude, I am, I'm just doing my best to keep my cool right now. I am, when I found out that we were going to have Adam on the panel, I was like, yeah, Kevin on one day and Adam on the other, just shoot me, don't pinch me, because I don't want to wake up. This is amazing. Because I grew up with that show. My dad was like, this is the Batman you see. I'm like, someday. Someday. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's it for me. He's still got it. He's still got it. This is this is so cool. Uh, I I just always think it's funny like when you two like will voice characters like in a game that eventually get paired up. Like in binary domain. Do you ever look at them and say, Hey, that's kinda of funny? That's kinda of creepy. It, it happens more often than we would that we even we would say we expect it. Um, yeah. But we love it. Uh, I mean, you know, Wonder Woman and Superman on a day. I love it. It's not very often you get to go to work and your spouse, you know. One question I have is that um Recently, uh, famously, actually, they played a Superman and Wonder Woman comic book. Yeah. And for preparation for this game, I know that DC Comics was a lot forthcoming and bringing the current stuff for this game. So, are there any sparks flying between Superman and Wonder Woman in this game? Are we allowed to reveal that? Well, we are rocking the new 52 uniforms. um, And uh, we certainly are on. A day. They may or may not be together. We're certainly at a table enjoying food and beverage. Yes, yes. At the same table. Uh, (laughs) So you can infer from that what you will. In in our superhero personas, not even in our Diana and George. Yeah. Although she doesn't really play like Diana. You guys are both veteran voice actors, but what's it like playing Superman and Wonder Woman, two iconic characters that have been the same decades and decades? What's it like playing the two iconic characters? It feels like kind of like a check mark. Yeah. (laughs) 
I mean, really, you, one of the, I mean, growing up, Superman was, uh, you know, like a, a real big influence me all the way from the end of elementary school, middle school, and to high school. Um, Death of Superman and beyond, you know, like kind of rocked me. So, um, any any time you get to play a character that you have a real personal history with, it's very intimidating and, and coveted, at least for me. Um, it's also nice because it's, it's Lego, so you get to have a lot of fun with it. It's not crazy serious. You get to do kind of a comedic take on it, but you still get to hear the Superman theme when you're flying around with him in the game, which is major fan service for I me. I may or may not have hung <laughs> It happened. So you both are getting to work on such sophisticated and amazing game projects now. As, you know, as talents, like, how do you think, like, the video game world is just totally opening up, you know, for great projects like this, and, and then um, you look at Infamous, and it's just, like, such great scripts and writing, and how do you, how much, it seems like it's really opening up in terms of story and scenario. And it only keeps growing, you know, it, with this trend of uh, opening up to motion capture and performance capture, I feel like it's becoming so cinematic. It just feels like you're in a in a movie and getting to decide here. Yeah, a lot of narrative gameplay, a lot of great narrative storytelling, and then on the other side of it, I, I mean, everything that Lego has been doing is, is fantastic. Whether it's whether it's this, whether it's Marvel, whether it's the Star Wars franchise, like them getting into all of these worlds that we we know and love really affords a take for. I think we said before, um, you know, a chance for parents to share with their kids kind of the things that they loved growing up and now they're in sharing a friendly it, way. In a friendly way yeah. they can play and once their kids go to bed they can play her three hours. <laughs> yeah. Which we know they do. Yeah, I know I do. <laughs> We've met them. <laughs> there are so many different versions of these characters in yeah. fiction, including we're now to the point where there are different Lego versions of these characters. <laughs> because we have the Lego movie. Right. right. So if you guys see the Lego movie We did. did. did you, kind of think, that's not, I don't know if that's my, <laughs> that's my one. We were super judgmental. Yeah, so, no, I thought the Lego movie was hilarious. We, it. Mm, we, we twisted our mustaches <laughs> when we were watching. Mm, I guess this will pass. <laughs> <laughs> no, they did, a, they did a great job. Channing Tatum and, uh, and uh, what's the name of the Batman? Uh, oh, uh, the Roman? Yes, well, yeah, uh, great well, job. I mean, they did a fantastic job. And, um, they nailed it, you know. The Lego world is, is fun in that way. I, mean, I thought they just did a spectacular job. Yeah. I mean, obviously, they took from us. Oh, totally. When they were coming up <laughs> totally. with their very it's one of the few female characters in this game. What's it like to fight alongside these guys, but also just be this strong female character and try to keep that same respect level and position as them? Right. I. It's, it's really a non-issue. It's, it's crazy when we were recording because being in that room, it was a very large recording room we recorded together. And I don't know, like, like 15 people yeah, in the room together, which is large for uh, like a And I was the only girl in there. And uh, it's just gotten to the point because so many projects are like that now, where there's one female in the room that you, you just don't, you get so used to it, and you're kind of on their level. Nobody thinks of it in any other way. Um, and Wonder Woman is such a strong character yeah, that there's gotta, never a doubt that she could just kick everybody's butt, you know. It's true. I mean, you could literally hand 
something that you've voiced and, and that you've really enjoyed voicing. It, uh, it, it's, it's a treat. Um, and add that to the fact that it's the Lego series, so everything is heightened, everything is more over the top. Um, the, show, the show Green Lantern, I mean, the, the, the tone was a lot more adult. Um, and uh, I mean, somebody died in the first episode, in the first like five minutes. Uh, but the tone, the tone is definitely more, uh, more fun in the game. And so it's it, it was great. It was great to just come come back and, and play uh, a little bit more of a jokey Hal Jordan, uh, somebody that, that is definitely a bit more over the top stuff, kind of pushed the limits. So uh, Green Lantern, he gets a lot of grief in the game. Yes. Uh, <laughs> does he get that much grief in the game? Well, not so much because in this one he really plays a really important role. Um, like I'm not sure how much I can actually talk about the game, but um, you know, the, Brainiac needs all the powers of the Lanterns to get the power trigger. So you're gonna really need how to, to kind of guide you through all these worlds and, and all the powers of the lanterns. So he, he plays a much more important role. So he might get some grief, but you know, they, they, they still really need him. He's, he's got he's to gotta help save everybody's butts. There's actually a lot of lantern stuff in this game. Absolutely. Uh, other playable characters who are lanterns and, and there are levels that are lantern planets. Yes. Do you think are you pushing for this to be the groundwork for a Lego Green Lantern game? You can't give away all my secrets. I'm trying to do this on the low. But I would love that. Yeah. I think a, I think a Lego Green Lantern game would be amazing. I mean, there's so much there's so much space to explore, and, and uh, you know this this definitely kind of goes that way. So, I'm not gonna say that it's all. Green. Do you like to play the games you work on a lot, or do you just Absolutely. not have time? No, 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 no. I gotta make time because uh, you know I'm, I've been a gamer since since games were around. Started out well. I, I guess there was stuff before Atari, but you know, I started out with Atari, and that was the, Pong. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, I never. Well, I played Pong after that, but you know, I would play the, the golf game where you would be hitting square ball and all that. But um, yeah, I, I, I love games, and and I love playing the stuff that I'm in. I love playing the stuff that I'm not in. Um, it's fun because I'm friends with like pretty much most of the voice acting world, so it's really fun to be able to go and and. Uh, See, hear my friends in the game, and then then you have that added that added thing in your head. Like, wait, but this is this is my friend. Should I really kill this guy? Or what, you know what I do here? 
Um, but yeah, I, I love playing games. You know, my wife's a gamer as well. We, we like to play all these things together and, and love the Lego games because of the co-op and stuff, stuff that we can we can actually sit down and play together and uh, you know go and, and, and find all the secret hidden things. We both like complete achievement horrors and we have to do 100. percent Now you voiced the Green Lantern, obviously on the uh, Green Lantern animated series. Now you're voicing the video game. Yes. Is there a large jump between animation to video game, or is just like coming home again? Um, it's it's a bit different. Um, it's well. I gotta I gotta preface that it's it's usually different because usually when you're voicing a video game it's just you in the booth by yourself and um, and and whereas when it's an animated series you have a lot of the cast in there and you're kind of going through it like a radio play so you're acting off of each other you have that uh, that group dynamic there's that energy that comes with the group recording that's uh, a lot of times not there in the video games however with Lego Batman for a lot of the cinematic scenes we recorded it in the same fashion that you would normally record an animated series where we had a bunch of the cast in there, you know, we, we had you know, Dee and Troy and, and, uh, and Travis and Laura in there and, and, and some others as well, and we would just be going through the script, and, and so there is still that energy that's there, which is great, because I mean, with Lego, it's, it's all high energy, and you want to have that group dynamic, and, uh, and we had that with us, and then there would only be certain times where I would come in and, and do uh, smaller smaller bits of dialogue, you know, the grunts and the, and all that kind of stuff, that, that you, you can do by yourself, but for the actual meat and potatoes of the story, that's, we all, we all recorded that as if we were recording, you know, a movie or, or an animated show, so it really just felt like, uh, like coming home, um, but higher energy, more fun, uh, you know, not, not as, uh, as dramatic in, in the Green Lantern animated series sense. You've played Green Lantern, you've played uh, The Flash, you've played Spider-Man. Is there maybe like one really special hero or character, could be even a villain that's really special to you that you would like a shot at? I gotta think about that. Um, there's, I, I, I'd say, there's, there's nobody specific villain-wise, but I'd like to, I'd like to start trying my hand at some villains because I like being crazy, and uh, especially crazy that doesn't think they're crazy. The best kind of. Are you jealous of Troy because he plays both the Joker and Batman? You know, he kind of gets the jealousy. I'd, I'd call it more of a, more of a respect and admiration. Yes. I think that it's, I think it's awesome that he's been able to do that and do it successfully, and uh, it's good, man. Like you're, you're always happy for all your other fellow boys. Because this game moves into space, and because in the DC universe, space is a big playground for the Green Lantern comic books. Like, do you does, does Green Lantern in this game get to? I don't want to say do more, but is there more uh, opportunities for you to perform it being space? Absolutely. Yeah. There's well, and and again, just because of the fact that the storyline really uh, hinges a lot on the different powers of the different lanterns, um, there's definitely a lot more for Green Lantern to do in this game than there was in the previous one. Do you voice any other characters in the game, either non-playable characters or maybe unlockables? I, I do, but let me ask if I can say it. Oh, no. Single lawyers are going to make it. Okay. Are you good? Shazam Billy Bats. Nice. Oh, wow. Okay, that is cool. Very wow. cool. Wow. <laughs> See, aren't you glad I asked? And that was something that was totally just thrown at me in the session. Like, I didn't know I was going to be playing him, and then the, the, our, our wonderful director, J.B. Blanc, uh, threw it at me, and... Uh, and I didn't even know that I was going to be... I, at first, we thought it was just going to be Shazam. And he's like, okay, now we're going to do the Billy Batson line. So I was like, but Billy Batson's like... Yeah. Like, no. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't sure if I was going to pull it off. The transformations are actually a big part of this game. Because there are the, the secret identities and the superhero version. Right. How many times did you have to try Shazam to get that perfect Shazam? Um, I, I mean, I really just kind of said it a bunch of times. And, uh, I, I, can, I can talk about I cannot that. look at you and play the stage. Well, because I'm not. 
Green Lantern's light. Hey! I had to have the mask on to do that. It just wouldn't work otherwise. Would you, do you find yourself like in good company with other people who may not be grown up with comics but voice these characters, or is it like? You know, I'm sorry, that may like when you uh, like for instance, if someone voices a character but aren't familiar with the material, do you find yourself saying, "No, it should be like this," because in the comics do this, or just like let them do their own thing? No, because um, I mean these these characters are are written are written well enough that they're kind of open to interpretation and you know what may work for me what may be what I'm hearing in my head you know somebody has a different idea and, and who knows I mean that might be that might change what I hear in my head from then on out um, I mean I've, I've played characters that that I've had people come up to me and say you know what I, I, I didn't like you before but then you know the more I started to hear where you went with it you kind of have become the voice in my head I, I think that that every actor really has the power to change somebody's perception on what they hear in their head and there is no one right way to do it I definitely think that there's that there's uh, some interpretation as long as they're sticking to uh, the core tenets of that character. It doesn't really make a difference whether or not they have like it super super uh, detailed familiarity with the comics. You know, as long as they're getting the core right, I think that, uh, that they're in good shape. The other things are, are details that can add color to it. And I think it helps. I absolutely think that if you if you are more familiar with the comics, you're going to have more information to start from, uh, to build on. You know, a lot more of that work is already done for you. But you can still get to that same place or, or a different place that's coming out of a similar place. I think that, uh, you know, knowing it helps, but I don't necessarily think it is necessary. All right, so... In a, so out of the voice characters, we have uh, Troy Baker is returning as Batman, Travis Willingham as Superman. Um, so they're returning from their roles in Lego Batman 2. Um, the one question that I was kind of looking for was, which not necessarily any of the voice actors could have answered, but I'm kind of interested if they're going to end up having a Lego Batman movie 2 
but it's based off of Lego Batman 3, the video game, if that makes sense. Because Lego Batman 2, they ended up releasing a movie that was based off of the, the basically the storyline of Lego Batman 2. Um, so I'm kind of curious if they're going to do that again. It also, in my mind, makes sense because they can get a little bit more of a budget towards the voice actors by having these other characters. Um, there was some concerns I saw online that Clancy Brown had been replaced as Lex Luthor. That's not true. He actually is back as Lex Luthor. Uh, there's a video up on the website of the voice actors talking about their roles behind the characters um, that you can check out as well. Um, and Clancy Brown is shown in some of the videos or video clips from that uh, behind-the-scenes featurette. The one character or the one other voice actor that kind of was unexpected. We knew he was going to be there, but unexpected to the world of Lego Batman was, in fact, Adam West. Adam West was there because he, as I mentioned earlier, they're going to be releasing Batman 66 characters. So, as I mentioned, Batman 66 is going to have a ton of, they're going to have a ton of characters in the Lego Batman 3 video game. And Adam West is not only going to be voicing the Batman 66 version of Batman, but he's also going to be playing himself in the game. Um, as I said, we have screenshots on the website for you to check out. But for right now, let's uh, listen to what Adam West had to say about Lego Batman 3. Uh, what are your favorite lines from your character in Lego Batman 3? Like, when you get to play your character, what do you like to say, or what was your favorite thing? In the game. In the game. Uh, I wrote down a couple here. Um, if I can take a moment. Um, you did homework for us. <laughs> we appreciate it. Looks like it's time for a senior superhero to go out and dispense some justice. <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, help! I'm Adam West. I'm in some kind of peril. <laughs> <laughs> What's, what's your favorite Batman villain? Uh, Personal favorite? Favorite, uh, favorite Batman villain, of course, would be Catwoman. <laughs> <laughs> you know, curious stories of the utility belt. That old line. DC Comics has been um, releasing a series called Batman 66. And it's about your version of Batman. Have you seen those? And if you have, what's your reaction to it? Yes, I have seen the uh, new comic magazines, uh, uh, Batman 66. Yes. Uh, it, it just made me feel older. <laughs> no, I was wonderful because, you know, I think for an actor who's really tried to do the best in whatever work you have, to bring something fresh. Uh, things like that are a tribute. And if people enjoy it, and if it makes them happy and brings them a few laughs, whatever, it brings me a few laughs too. Did you um, have any uh, trouble voicing Batman just by your voice? You acting, you know, physically acting him on the screen. But what's it like just using your voice to portray the character? It wasn't difficult because when I assumed the character in whatever situation, that older character, it comes right back. It's easy. You know, you just slip right back on there. If 
the chemistry's right. If you're allowed to work in an environment that is not inhibited. And my point being that when I walked on the set during the time we shot that, I always tried to create fun around with everybody because it was the only way I could that man communicate that kind of zaniness and fun you know, for the kids and the adults. So I always try to do that. But you guys aren't having any fun. I'm a little ticked. I feel like a fair. <laughs> no. But, uh, We're having a wonderful time. No. I'm, I'm sure everyone here grew up with your show. Um, I mean, I used to come home from school and watch it. What What's it like bringing that Batman to a whole new generation of young fans? Well, when I look at you and I see that... Uh, oh, God. <laughs> but you turned out okay. And that's rewarding too. Because I get judges, I get janitors, I get plumbers, I get lawyers, doctors coming up to me all the time. And they say, kind of what you did. Gee, I watched Batman and that changed my whole life. You know? Because of you, I'm out fighting crime. <laughs> If your version of Batman was locked in a room with the other versions of Batman, what type of advice would you give them? That's a good question. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I don't think, frankly, I would presume to give any advice because they do their thing and I do not And after all, they're wonderful talents and they have... In the films that they do, they have every production, facility, and aid that they, you could ever imagine. We didn't, but we managed to put up and finance whatever we had. But they have great talent. I couldn't tell them what to do. I play it. You've done um, animated work, you've done video game work, you've done screen work, and film work. Is there any place left for you to go? I want to go home. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I had the privilege of doing a serious thing on the stage, the Amundsen, the music center, and a few other things, and a couple of good movies and a lot of turkeys. <laughs> but you know, you got to make a living. But if there was anything that I would like to do, I think I thought about the reinterpretation of that. Even as Batman's father, I thought, what could happen when things were so desperate that the needed help? Some dark and stormy with lightning from the library building swinging over. Batman's bad father comes in and says, Son, I know you're in trouble. I can help It's interesting to see all of the different levels and character guises or whatever that Batman can take. That's the wonderful thing about that character. What do you think about the prospect of the new Batman versus Superman film, and, and what do you think Ben Affleck will be like as Batman? 
Um, you know, I have no idea how Ben is going to do that. I have, I have a feeling that he's going to be uh, somewhat introspective and troubled. And, uh, you know, he's a very good actor. And I would never dream of telling him, or really any other actor, uh, unless I'm directing on my something. <laughs> but how to do it? He'll be fine. Got to shave his beard. <laughs> now that you said that, I would love to see a, a Batman film directed by Adam West. How did you just mention that? Uh, you know, when I first started uh, in TV, I directed. And uh, when I was in the Army, I started the Army's first uh, civil war uh, TV stations. And I worked as a writer and director for a couple of years. Uh, I wouldn't mind directing good material uh, in the movie, but otherwise it's just too damn much work. <laughs> so many of the recent interpretations of Batman have been very dark. Uh, you talked about, you know, you think Ben Affleck's version is probably going to be pretty introspective and troubled. Do you want to see a lighter version of Batman on the screen uh, happening soon? Maybe you could direct that one. I would like to see him. I would like to see a sardonic kind of wit. And maybe they're doing that as well. But I think that, I don't know, the way I might do it is to have more uh, humor about myself and what's happening. Because it's desperate and, as I said, troubled. And if you can't laugh a little at yourself or the Joker or whatever, well, I, I just feel the audience likes that moment of relief of character, an added dimension to the character. But you know, they'll do it their way. There's a, um, all the characters have sort of a stealth mode, like Cyborg turns into a washing machine, what kind of stealth would be 60s Batman stealth mode is turned to Adelaide's story. Are you talking about uh, stealth? In, in the game, in the Lego Batman. Yeah. Uh, from what I've seen of it, now I hate to try to, you know, snow anybody. But I think they put so many different elements in that stealth is there. <laughs> you know, the stuff that we kind of mused about and discovered with the clues and did, that's all in the game. You guys are going to love this game. I'm going to learn how to play it. <laughs> There's a new um, show premiering this fall called Gotham. I'm sure you've heard of it. It's a prequel to the Batman series. Any interest in coming on for a role, maybe as a crime boss or a villain? Uh, I'd love to play a villain. You know, I've done villains many times. When I first started under contract performance, I played villains, like cowboys and all that stuff. Um, but, yeah, it's always interesting and fun. To dig in and try to play a villain that is really any particular Batman villain that you'd like to sink your teeth into? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I gave you the setup. Well, I'd like to play an even more grotesque version of Joker or Mr. Freeze and find Mr. Freeze occasionally in his own environment enjoying, for example, a cold sun. <laughs> I won't go on this. <laughs> there, in the 60s series, there are some sort of public service announcements, you know, like wear your seatbelt, things like that. Do any of those pop up in the in the Lego Batman game? Just as little... Yes, there are those moments. Okay. Uh -huh. I don't remember them quite now. I've been so distracted. Uh, just ignore us. If, if you could never go back in time and talk to It's all a synergy. It's <laughs> all mutual exploitation. <laughs> Um, comic book TV shows and movies at the moment we mentioned Gotham there's a Flash um, this is Arrow Harry said this as well coming Constantine what do you think it is about comic books that translate so well to the small screen and the big screen and why do you think they're proving so popular right now everything is kind of sick you know what goes around probably. and um, indeed it is the day and night of the superhero uh, it will probably last quite a while, as long as it continues to bring, bring big bucks at the box office. It's that simple. And people seem to like it. I think they, more than ever, because this world has gone crazy. You know, if you look around and hear the news, read things, it's gone crazy. So superheroes are remarkable to skin. You can dream with them. You can pretend with it. And if it's, uh, for example, my Batman, um, he's a vulnerable guy, and he's human. So you can pretend that you're Batman too. We all have to, you know, come out of whatever we're doing and occasionally dream and, and have fun with something because it's a tough world out there. All right, so honestly... What's the takeaway from Adam West in Lego Batman 3? Josh, you want to get this one? It's just, you know, how in these Lego games you can do alternative character costumes. And because there's an alternative costume for Adam West, um, they decide to get the real deal to do the voices. And he mentioned in the interview that there's going to be some Adam West-type quips, you know, and some of those PSA-type stuff that he would do on the show about always buckling your seatbelt and everything like that. So it sounds like... Um, if you're getting this game and if you're able to unlock the Adam West uh, variant, uh, you'll be in for a lot of fun. Then from that, we're going to move into some of, we're going to kind of break it up and we're going to do a couple of the comic creator interviews now before we get into some of the other main things. Uh, let's talk Brian Buccioletto. Let's listen to what Brian Buccioletto had to say about Detective Comics and his run on the book. Hey, this is Cell with the Batman Universe. I'm here with writer and colorist Brian Bucciolato and he's currently on Detective Comics. How are you doing today? I'm doing alright. I'm doing pretty good. Uh, Co-writing Detective with Francis uh, he, and then he does the art and uh, I follow up on colors. It's a uh, fun time. Right. So no surprise this is a gorgeous book and I had been following you since Flash. What was the transition like? Was it difficult to go from Flash, pretty much a, a strictly superhero book, to this, Batman, being it more a detective-guided book? 
Well, I think what people don't realize, because you know what you know and what you've been exposed to. So uh, as writers, uh, uh, our entry into comic books for Francis and I was Flash. So I think the assumption is that's the type of story that we're capable of telling. But uh, our wheelhouse is actually a lot closer to Gotham and Batman. Um, as much as we love uh, Barry Allen and Central City and Flash, and, and you know, uh, I think we'll always feel that special something for Barry because we brought him to the New 52, uh, I think aesthetically uh, Gotham and Batman is closer to what, to what we like and our personal tastes. Was it difficult to transition because art is such a huge part of your storytelling? Was it tough to go from what you had been doing for a couple of years to well, even I mean, though it's been in your blood, as you've kind of said? Well, I mean, I, I mean, Francis has the har the harder job, right? Because he's the one doing the the art. I come in with the colors uh, at the end, try not to screw it up. Uh, so, uh, I guess you could pose that question to him, but I think I think he would say that uh, it's not harder; it's just different. You know what I mean? Like each each creative challenge is its own thing. In some ways, it was probably easy for him because uh, not only did he draw uh, the run that we did uh, for the New 52, but he also did a run on Flash with Jeff Johns. So he'd been drawing uh, Flash for so long that creatively, he was ready for a change, you know? Yeah. So I love Harvey Bullock in this book. I think it's awesome. He's just such a different character, I think, than we've seen. So capable, really coming into his own without Jim. What made you want to grasp this character and use him the way that you've been using him? Well, I think it was, it was a couple things. I think uh, we, we saw an opportunity with Harvey. Um, we used him in our Flash uh, uh, Zero Year uh, issue, and uh, we just kind of, we really liked him. Um, and I think because there's so many other Bat stories out there, and, and uh, you know, Batman Zero Year and, and Batman Eternal, and there are all these big stories with, the, with multiple characters, uh, it, it's tough to sort of carve out a space for a character and make them your own. So uh, I think uh, we sort of staked our claim to Harvey very early on and said, you know, we'll create new characters and we'll use lesser characters like the Squid and, you know, really obscure guys like, you know, Sumo, but uh, we want Harvey. Um, I think it speaks to the fact that uh, he and I both really like the detective uh, murder mystery, um, you know, a procedural aspect to, to Batman. So his relationship with Batman very much contrasts what we've seen with Jim Gordon and Batman in that it's just very chafing and they're not really getting along um, and he always suspects him and of course Bruce Wayne. Do you think there will ever be a better point in the relationship or do you think it's always going to be this way? Um, I think it will evolve to some degree but I don't think they will ever like each other. I think, you know, and they both have valid points. Uh, we know Harvey's cut corners and done some questionable things. Uh, to sort of get the job done on his end, uh, but conversely, Batman's a vigilante and he's basically illegal. And so, if, from Harvey's perspective, uh, you have a guy here who's not accountable because he's wearing a mask. Uh, so, you know, I think they both don't have any reason to like each other. Uh, but where their interests intersect, uh, we'll see them cooperate because, at the end of the day, they want the same thing. But as far as you know. Uh, being buddies and having a beer, I doubt it. Now, to Annie, she's in a very vulnerable position right now yes. because she just lost, you know, a mother. And you have Batman kind of sticking his hooks in her, trying to help her out, and now we've seen these sons, right? Yeah. And so can you talk a little bit about, you know, the future of this? How 
either of these relationships are going to be? Is it really going to be her going back and forth between the two and ultimately decide? Well, it's really tough to answer because uh, our first arc wraps up uh, with issue 34. And so there is, there is closure to the uh, Elena murder mystery story arc. Uh, but uh, yeah, Annette will see her uh, down the road. Um, she will be coming back. Um, but as far as uh, the choices she makes and, uh, you know, which path she decides to go down, I, I don't want to really reveal. Okay. Um, but suffice to say, she has, you know, obviously she's uh, analogous to other characters we've seen who have been in that position and become right. Robin and, and, and done, you know, so uh, that's all very intentional. But she's her own person, and so she's got her own uh, path to follow. So do you think we can say that she's maybe going to be a... a big figure point for the Batman family and that she'll be sticking around a little bit? I think she'll be important to the Bat universe. Okay. I don't know how big a part of the family she'll okay. be, um, but I, I think she's. She, we've got some interesting stories with her and I think she'll definitely make her mark. How uh, big of the arcs, how many issues in the arcs do you think you'll continue? Because this one's kind of a moderately large story. Do you think you'll keep to a larger um, issue arc style or do you think you'll start shrinking down? What are your plans for that? Well, I think uh, this was a five issue story arc. Mm -hmm. Our next story arc is also five issues. Okay. What we'd like to do and who knows if we'll be able to actually uh, be able to do that straight through is we want to do like tell a year long story, uh, you know uh, 12 issues in a row just the two of us, no fill-ins, no you know, like that's I think what our goal is mm -hmm. um and I think inside that you have mi you'll have mini stories. So I think I think the key to doing that is not to draw out to take one story and sort of pull at both ends so it's twelve issues or a month. But it's you have you have a s scope to a story, and inside that you have the sort of mini stories. So I think that's kind of what we want to do. Any characters you hope to tackle in the future? Well, Harvey's sticking around for sure. I'm glad. Um, our next arc is going to involve anarchy. Okay. Uh, it's going to be a slightly different type of anarchy uh, that you've seen before. Um, and uh, we definitely want to keep to the murder mystery and the, the sort of noir detective. Uh, somebody dies, there's a crime, and you know the world's greatest detective is on the case. I'm so glad. One final question, kind of a fun one. You get the call, they're going to turn one of your stories into an animated film. Which story, either from Flash or your detective, do you think you would like to make into an animated film? Wow. Um, hmm. So, I mean, like, like all your they're like all ch their children. It's hard choosing I know, right? one or the other. Uh, if it was a, a collaboration with Francis, uh, I would probably choose Icarus because I think it's a probably okay. our most... Uh, uh, well-rounded story. Mm -hmm. If it was something that I did solo, I, I think I would like to see uh, the Flash Annual 2 because I, I was able to tell the first meeting of Hal Jordan and Barry Allen in the new DC uh, 52. So I would like to have seen that. Okay, yeah. thank you so much. Absolutely. All right, so Stella, what do you think the takeaway from that interview is? <laughs> uh, I, I'd say mostly it was great to talk to him about Harvey Bullock. Um, and just how that role is shaping up and what we can expect from him. Again, he's not writing for the trade, which which I think we hear a lot for creators. But uh, you know we've had a, a longer story arc with Icarus. And I think the next story arcs or so will be about the same size, if not a little shorter. And then we get a little tease for what's going to happen with uh, Annie. 
And I kind of tried to push and, and ask, you know, how big of a, a character is she going to be for the Batman family? And he said overall she's going to be a bigger character, but for the Batman family, you know, he wasn't going to go into details about that. Okay, so probably not a good idea to just assume that she's going to be some sort of person within the Bat family at this point. Right. All right, so then an- another interview that we, we conducted was uh, Tom King and Tim Seeley. So let's listen to what was asked there. This is Don with the Batman Universe, and I am here with the writers of Grayson, Tom King, and Tim Seeley. How are you guys doing? Not too bad. We're, we're holding up, I think. Right? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks for having us on. I, I greatly appreciate it. Absolutely, no problem. So, Dick Grayson, spy, very kind of unique new idea. What, what, what brought you guys to that idea, first off? Well, it's the DC idea first. Uh, they came and asked us what we would do with it, and it was... Uh, us, it was up to us to come up with the best idea, so we just had to figure out how to make this work and what it was really about. And I think what we came up with was we wanted to stick to be a spy doing good and working for an organization that does good but doesn't always do good and does sometimes does bad. And the reason he's working for that organization is to find out the bad stuff. So he's both doing good as a spy and he's also spying on the spies. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, Spiral was, a, was an organization introduced through Batman Inc. Uh, what new can we see from then, coming from Grayson? Um, well, basically, we, I thought it was such a great idea that there was this organization that existed in the DC Universe that was tasked with sort of watching and taking out the superhumans that were there. And they had the Ginchy name and the cool Spiral. It's like, why waste that? It's so great. So, uh, and plus it was made up by Grant Morrison, which inherently makes it just that much cooler. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but what we want to do is kind of expand upon it and use them as sort of a, a stand-in for modern sort of way that uh, spy agencies work and governments work, which is to spy on their own citizens and, and to sort of uh, make sure that they know who holds the power, which we thought in a, in a world full of guys like Superman, and they would be very interested in that. So uh, that's kind of become Dick's mission, and it's, you know, we'll get to see a, a sort of more of the inside workings of Spiral and kind of, you know, what their, uh, how, how they function and what allows them to do crazy things like talk people into doing things and control minds and stuff. So um, it's very, it's going to be a little deeper, even though it's mostly about Dick Grace. And we introduced a new character who's the head of Spiral called Mr. Minos. And if you know, the old head was, was Dr. Daedalus, and the, 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 uh, the old Greek story is that Daedalus is, is stuck in a, in a labyrinth, and Minos is the man who builds the labyrinth. So that might tell you about Minos. He's the man who built the labyrinth that captures the last guy. Now, I was rereading the first issue just last night in preparation for this. Obviously, I, I, I loved it. I really did love it. Can you talk about, like, it was, it's not like anything we've seen Dick do before. You know, he's usually a crime fighter, he's a sidekick, or he's Nightwing, or he's Batman sometimes. What's it like writing this, this, this huge character, Dick Grayson, in this sort of like, this role that's still totally new to him? How do you approach Dick Grayson in this sort of like non-costume role? Uh, to me, he's still Dick Grayson. I, 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 I like what you say, he's never done it before, but everything he does is still it's consistent with who he is for the last 74 years. Like, this, this is a book about the guy who was Robin, who was the sensation of 1940 when he first came out, and, and who, who came down in a huge high collar with beautiful George Perez drawing him. I mean, that, that, that's all still there. I mean, you see him flipping using his acrobatic skills. You see him using, uh, he's the most charismatic character in the DCU, and you see him using that right up front. Um, and, and, and he's a man who wears a lot of disguises. He's a man who wears a lot of identities, and that's what a spy does. So 
to me, even though he's in a different context, what you're seeing is, is what Dick Grayson would do in this context. Yeah, we, that was one of the things we, we talked about very early on, was we're not going to change the character. The character's perfect. But it's interesting we take a character that you don't need to change and put them in a different situation. So it had to be, like you said, something we haven't seen before, but the same guy. Because otherwise it, would be, it wouldn't be fun to see someone we changed just for the storyline. It's more important that he's the guy we've all known in this completely different world. Now, Helena Bertinelli is a character who's, you know, before Flashpoint was the Huntress. We had a Huntress in Earth 2, but now we have a completely separate Helena. That was, that was Helena Wayne. Now we have Helena Bertinelli and, you know, as an agent of Spiral. How are you guys approaching this version of the character now? I think we, we came into it saying, like, that character was super cool and was distinct from Helena Wayne. Right. Helena Bertinelli was, you know, the daughter of these mafiosos, and, and, and her story was great. And it was more of a crime story than Helena Wayne, who was obviously the daughter of uh, Catwoman and, and Batman. So we want to preserve that stuff, but put her in a new situation, because there's already a Huntress. There's already a, a Helena who wears a purple costume and, and runs around uh, rooftops at night. So this character, her path led her to be this agent of a, of a spy organization, and we haven't seen why yet, but we get to play sort of with a very similar character to what she was, but in a, in a, in a new sort of international spy um, genre and a different backstory, just a slightly tweaked to be, you know, that of 2014 instead of her original, you know, original year of creation. And we wanted to build sort of a parallel uh, with Dick Grayson growing up as a sidekick in someone's shadow and learning from that person, and he's sort of back in that role. Uh, Helena, at the beginning of the series, is a better spy than Dick, and he's sort of teaching, and he has to learn so much so that we, we, we dropped some uh, hints. I think in, um, in the Future's End issue, I have him climbing up the side of a wall yeah. in the classic sort of pose to sort, to sort of be like, he's back in sort of that parallel world. And, and that tension you know, of like, I escaping a sidekick, and here, here I'm, a, I'm a sidekick again. And with a beautiful woman who we have an attraction with each other and playing with all of that and, and that aspect is just it's fun and cool. I was going to bring it up because a, a lot of people know that Dick Grayson is quite the charmer so are we going to see any sparks fly between him and Helena or anybody else? I mean we tried to throw a little bit of sparks right off the bat. Yeah, I, felt, I think we felt like you know this is a dynamic everyone wants to see and who, who would we be to deny you that dynamic? We're going to make it, we're giving you what we want and what you want. We know what you know. So it's going to be a sexy book. It has to be. I think it's the book starring Dick Grayson as a spy. It's like that is inherently sexy. And there'll be abs flying all over and, and you know, and it, it, it'll be about that as much as it's about, you know, punching and jumping and all that stuff because that's part of who Dick Grayson is. Whoever Dick Grayson sees sparks fly. Yeah, yeah. He's on the con. con he's constantly flying off sparks. That's from Dick Grayson. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, uh, finally, the one thing that really got my interest was the fact that um, Agents of Spiral have this sort of hypnotic ability. Uh, what can you tell us about that to see more towards the future? Well, that one we'll definitely yeah. see more of it. So that, the idea was uh, what we kind of wanted to do in the first issue is is you're kind of confused as to how that happened too, which I thought was cool because that's the whole thing about spirals. Yeah. They confuse and delude your mind, and they can do this. So just dropping the readers in to be like, wait, what are they doing? And I thought it would be fun to sort of have that unfold over a couple issues. But we will see kind of how that works. Um, but I think part of it is just sort of, you know, their whole job is to erode the mind and delude people's uh, perception. And if you're an agent of Spiral, you get this cool implant that lets you do it, but there's dangers to it. If you use it too much, you could fry your brain, like Dick says in the first issue. He doesn't want to make a two-brain scramble, because it might cause some terrible feedback. So, so it's going to be a thing that he's learning to use, and he can't always use it. There's restrictions. If someone's moving too fast, if they're, you know, if they're maybe someone like a... 
Midnighter, who's just a super badass and can resist pretty much anything. It doesn't work. Um, so we're going to see a lot of, you know, more about that, but also I think it's fun to not exactly know how it works right away. And we can't forget that in, right, right now the world knows who Dick Grayson is. They know Dick Grayson is Nightwing. And he has to disguise that. He has a way of disguising it. And so that spiral has given him this ability so that if cameras see him, if people see him, they don't see Dick Grayson. They see the spiral swirl. The spiral is the master of deception. So he, he uses that to get, uh, to, to deal with the fact that his identity has been, has been revealed. Thank you very much, guys. All right, so that interview with Tim Seeley and Tom King, the creators behind Grayson, um, Don's not here right now, but Don was the one who conducted the interview. The Basically, it seems like they're really enthusiastic about it, but the one thing that I found interesting about the interview was the fact that they, in fact, it was a idea that DC, and I'm guess, they didn't say it, but I'm guessing DC Editorial came up with and approached them to you know, take hold of this book. So I'm kind of, I'm wondering, hmm, how long ago was that planned? Was that, you know, something with the previous uh, editorial uh, with Mike Martz and Katie Kubert? Or is was that something as part of this, the new run with Mark Doyle? Um, I'm almost feeling like it would have been something that was under Mike Martz because of the timing of when this was all planned and Nightwing number 30 was coming out. It was all planned ahead of time with Mike Martz. So I thought that was kind of interesting. It wasn't them pitching an idea to them. It was DC approaching them and saying, hey, would you want to do this? All right. So now, well, we talked about Adam West. Let's uh, let's go back to Adam West and Burt Ward and Julie Newmar. Um, on Thursday night, we were at a press conference that Adam West, Burt Ward, and Julie Newmar were all in attendance. And there was a there was a ton of questions asked from various press, so we, the audio wasn't super great for this because it was a press conference. And instead of posting an entire hour's worth of a press conference, we figured we'd just kind of talk about some of the highlights from the press conference. So, what would you guys say the highlights were? We know that this, is in fact, is something that you know they were there promoting the release of the complete series on DVD and Blu-ray. I think some people were quite surprised later that night when it was announced how much those actual things were going to cost. The Blu-ray is, you know, $280. The DVD is, uh, I believe, if I remember, I, I'm not even going to spit out a number because I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's a lot of money. And you've got to save up a good chunk of money to, to be able to get this complete series. The plus side is that they did announce that the one, the first season will be released on DVD for only $39.99. So I guess in some ways you can slowly put together the series because it seems like they will be releasing the individual seasons as well. But the main reason they were there was because of the release of the of the complete series on DVD and Blu-ray. So what do you think were the best moments from the press conference? Definitely the chemistry that the three of them had with each other um, and still some flirtation between Batman and Catwoman all these decades later. Uh, I asked Burt Ward about his autobiography, which I had started reading before the trip, which reveals that um, he was hurt a lot during um, the shooting of the, these scripts. And he told some stories at the press conference about uh, his finger, you know, getting injured. And um, that, that sequence that you see in the intro of the Batmobile uh, going out of the uh, Wayne Manor Batcave. And he talked about uh, there was an episode where Catwoman's uh, tiger or panther was attacking him and 
the producers hung like a piece of meat above his head for the oh, tiger gosh. to go for. Yeah. Um, and, you know, little stuff like how Adam West would sometimes play the producers if he wanted to get a line in there. He would make sure that he messed up the line enough time so that during the last take they would have to use whatever he said. And now he would use that to sneak in stuff on set like uh, an episode where Batgirl's passed out in the back of the Batmobile. And Robin says, gosh, Batgirl, you know, sure looks pretty while she's sleeping. And Adam West responds, you know, you've just experienced your first thrust of manhood. That was something that Adam had snuck in there, and uh, he had to fight for the line, what a way to go-go, when Jill St. John dies in the pilots. Um, you know, l- little things like that. Here's a clip from the press conference where Burt Ward talks about one of the accidents that he had on set. <laughs> you know, it's amazing you mention that because it occurred to me. Boiled in oil. Boiled in oil. We got. I put this big magnifying glass over you. We got fried. We got. We were fried. We were grilled. The tigers. The tall corporal. The tigers. Yeah, that actually was an incredibly dangerous. It was very dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> camera, 
that he would take an egg and break it over my head, and then, uh, you know, and then do a second egg and break it over my head, and then he and Adam would have Batman, you know, egghead dialogue. And for some reason, both of them kept screwing up their lines. And after, after that case, I had egg going down my back into my underwear. I mean, it's so uncomfortable. So finally, when they got it right, I was originally supposed to just pick up an egg and throw it at Benson Price. But I actually got a little upset. Okay, so I picked up a dozen eggs and I smashed it on his head so hard that the egg tilted over a little bit. That's a true story. You can see it in the show. You'll see his egg tilted right at the end of that scene. That's what the whole crew started to throw eggs. Oh, that's true. We had great egg fights because Adam and I had planned this and just for the heck, you know, every once in a while when you're doing something and everything is so serious. Like I was 21, 22, and 23 when I did Batman. The youngest person on the set, besides me, was at 37. And everybody else was like 45, 50, 60. And then nothing against that, but they were the greatest uh, you know, technical people you could ever have. But the point of it was, for, for me, like a kid, being on, on that set, you know, serious every day, do this and do that, even though our show is funny, it's serious work that you have to be on time, you have to do this, you have to be in the right spot, get yelled at. So the long and short of it is to have a little fun. Boy, we threw those eggs and, and you know, and we start throwing them at the crew and then the crew realized that what we were doing and they had tons of eggs. It became a huge egg fight. It was really, it was therapeutic. It was for attention. Yes, and the eggs. So that was the, pro the Batman 66. Remember, as I said, that's coming on DVD and Blu-ray this November. All the details are over on the website. Let's jump into a number, another comic creator, and let's hear what Scott Snyder had to say about the book. This is Donovan from the Batman Universe, and I am here with Scott Snyder. How are you doing today? I'm good, man. I love you guys. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So this year, we just wrapped up Zero Year. With all that behind you now, what do you feel was the most difficult thing in reworking Batman's origin, and also what was the most rewarding thing? That's a great question. I mean, the most difficult thing, honestly, was just the pure intimidation. Like, I decided I was going to do it when DC really wanted one and kind of was thinking about having other people do one if we didn't do it. And I had an idea for it that I knew would, in my mind, at least make it very contemporary and about now and the fears we have now about random violence, terrorism, climate change, all of this stuff rolled into this kind of post-apocalyptic extravaganza, I guess, that the Riddler put together. But, um... And I, I laid it out. I was about to start. And, you know, I've always had trouble. And part of Zero Year is kind of about the idea of struggling with dark times, you know, at the end. But I've always had trouble uh, with depression and anxiety. And I sort of got right up to starting. And it was almost like I suddenly realized I was doing the origin. And I slipped out. And I had a lot of, a lot, I got very depressed and paralyzed and terrified of doing it. And Capullo, Greg, I mean, was such a good friend, and Mark Doyle, the editor on the book now, and James Tynan, and a bunch of my guys, like Jeff Lemire and Ray Fox, I mean, they really just helped me and be like, you got a great outline, just stick to it, write through it, because when you get that way, you're like, I suck, everything I write sucks, like, so it was literally the, the pure scariness of doing the origin, it was terrifying. The most rewarding thing is it's my absolute favorite thing that I've ever written on Batman, it's big and sprawling and all that stuff, but... It just means so much to me to to be able to make a personal story about why Batman is inspiring to me in dark times and to revamp it so that it's about now, at least in our opinion, and, and to bring that to a new generation of Bat readers and to also do it in a way that says it's okay to redo the origin if times change. 
again in the future. And, you know, they're different fears. And, and it's not like the way it's not graffiti and urban decay and gangs and all that stuff like it was in year one. We tried to change it to make it now in theory. Or if in 10 years or 15 years or 20 years it changes, let someone else do it again. You know, and, and I'm not saying continuity should constantly change. I mean, even if it's another form or another medium, movies or TV, it's always okay to redo the origin in some way to make it relevant. So that was the, the, it's been, that was the most rewarding aspect of it, too. Do you think you'll ever revisit that timeline in future stories? Oh, yeah, I'd love to, man. I'd love to go back to it. I already have ideas for other ones, like to pick up right where it left off. And I hope to. I hope to. I love the costume, too, man. I, lo I love the whole everyone's forming. I love the kind of primal, almost soup of Gotham at that time, that almost everyone's kind of becoming who they're, who they're uh, going to be. Now, you were the last person to write the Joker in the New 52. Do you have first tips to bring him back? Oh, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm absolutely going to bring him back, dude. That's... I always have had a second story with him in mind. I mean, if the first one is all about him saying, I love you, your villains love you, you're immortal when you hang with us, you hang with this family you built, they make you human, and you're going to get old and die eventually. You, with us, you're the stuff of legend. And Batman dropped him off a cliff, so if he was kind of like, I love you and we love you, now he's going to come back and just be like, no, I effing hate you. Now I'm just going to kill you, and I'm going to burn your world to the ground. We're not, you know, that's, we're done. So when he comes back, he's going to be extra scary. I promise. Excellent. All right. Thank you very much, Scott Snyder, Batman Universe. Thank you for coming. No, pleasure. Thanks again. Absolutely. All right. So it was a very short interview. Um, time was running short. I remember Don did do this interview, and I remember him telling me that they were running late and the interview got cut short. But just in that short bit of time that Don was able to talk to him, we did find out that, you know, confirmation of something that was already previously announced before about the fact that he is, in fact, planning on doing a Joker story that follows up death of the family um he mentioned later that weekend during a panel that in fact uh the first story was basically a love story where the joker loves batman and wants batman to be with him and to leave his family and the the sequel i guess to the story is batman is you know is is now joker hates batman and wants to you know, destroy Batman for, you know, basically turning him down or turning him away. So that's what we got from that interview. All right. So then another big thing that was at Comic-Con this year was Batman Assault on Arkham, which by the time you're listening to this uh, is, is, is coming to the stores very, very soon. It's actually available digitally for you to own if you want to buy it digitally on iTunes as of right now. But uh, Assault on Arkham was another big event, uh, the movie that's not, it's kind of deviating from the events of the DC Anime Universe and kind of what they've been trying to build since Flashpoint Paradox. But this movie is based off of the actual game franchise, the Arkham franchise that the games have been doing. And, you know, in some ways you can kind of understand why they would do something like this. Uh, similar to the Green Lantern Emerald Knights uh, one that was kind of supposed to in some ways be a lead up to the Green Lantern live action film Gotham Knight which in some ways people were saying were was supposed to clo uh, kind of bridge the gap between uh, Batman Begins and the Dark Knight similar in that vein where it's it's taking it's outside of the normal DC animated continuity and it's more in line with another media property um, so with this interview we talked with a number of different people uh, but let's let's hear from some of the the, the, the crew before we talk to the cast um, first up let's uh, let's hear what Jay Olivia the director of the film had to say. 
Was there any collaboration with WB Montreal, the game developer of Origins? Oh yeah, I mean, when clearly from the very beginning we asked for a lot of the character designs from them so that we could hook it up to like Penguin, we, we made sure it looked like the video game. So we, we went back and forth, and actually the way that the proportions of these characters are all based upon the proportion of uh, Batman in the video game. So he's actually a lot more heads tall and a lot more wider, because we took the, took the design of the, the video game and then just really did a line drawing, and then we designed all of our characters based upon Batman's proportions. Did you find yourself making different choices at all in, in the direction because of the fact that it was based on a video game? Uh, you know, the one thing from a directing standpoint, what I wanted to do was I wanted to feel like when you're playing the video game, so the locations kind of harken back to it, but I didn't want to be hamstrung by it. I didn't want to make it seem like, oh, it looks like an ad for the video game. So I wanted to make sure it's an organic storyline that fit to what the story was written. And so from a directing standpoint, though, I changed the way I directed this film. Normally I directed like your usual, you know, very epic, uh, sweeping film. Uh, but this one I, I wanted to do more like a Guy Ritchie film. I read the script and I was thinking, okay, if I directed this like how I would do something for Bruce Tim or, or in the past, and I was like, you know, this, this film might not be so good. So I, I, I pitched it to James. I said, hey, James, I want to do this like a Guy Ritchie film and uh, Steve Soderbergh kind of Ocean's Eleven, you know, Lock Stocks, uh, you know, Two Smoking Barrels type of fail. And he's like, yeah, let's try it. And so you'll get that, you know, even music wise, it's a little bit more contemporary. We don't really go the whole operatic Danny Elfman kind of or you know, Hans Zimmer kind of feel. We actually got something more contemporary, and I think it has a much better feel, and it's a little bit fresher, and it's kind of fun doing it. It's a little bit of a challenge, you know. We've seen some atmospheric horror films and thrillers like Shutter Island and even American Horror Story Asylum. What uh, influenced you, if anything, to create this? kind of creepy world and very horror. Uh, you know, what's funny is that I'm a huge horror film fan. When I was a kid, I was watching R-rated films that I sh was way too young to watch, you know? And I think that kind of influenced me that, you know, now I'm doing the superhero genre stuff. I always try to uh, put all the things that I love in the past. You know, I love Star Wars, I love Star Trek, but I also love The Shining and The Exorcist and all those kind of things. So when I do, like, a film that's very psychological, uh, I try to call, harken back to what I used to love as a kid. And also with this film, I try to balance the the video game kind of feel to the heist movie, but at the same time, add a little bit of scary elements that you'll see at the end. And Act Three, there's a little bit of you know uh, when the villains get all get released. There's a little bit of that that I kind of try to put in there. My just my little kind of like Sam nod to Sam Raimi horror films and, and all the John Carpenter stuff that I loved as a kid. You know, um, how do you feel about uh, choosing a composer? I mean, I I've enjoyed all the Christopher Drake oh, yeah, and Fred yeah. Weidman and all those guys. How do you choose a composer for these things? They're all good. Uh, sometimes it's 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 schedule because I think in this in this one it was either this or war Chris was busy because I think he was doing Origins he was doing uh, Origins so he was kind of busy and uh, and so a lot of times James and I will talk about who we want and I love Freddie Freddie did a uh, 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 Flashpoint and he was great but he was on another project so we were able to to get um, uh, who was the composer I'm blanking out uh, um, uh, Rob Crawl, Robert Crawl, which has worked in the past for us, and he's actually my neighbor, <laughs> and he's really, really good. And uh, and for the music, because I was trying a, a different directing style, I, I Jamins and I. We, we had this different idea for the, for the music. We wanted it a little more contemporary, a little bit different than the Danny Elfman, Hans Zimmer feel, because it would help the whole tone. But the great thing, though, is I'm a huge fan of uh, Light Motif, which is where a character's on screen, they have a theme, you know, because I love Star Wars. And you can listen to that movie and be like, that's where Yoda is, that's where Darth Vader is. And so I wanted to do that. So every time you had Batman on screen, you had a Batman theme. And then the theme harkened back to what Chris had done in the, uh, uh, in the last Batman films, and also even in Origins. 
So I think they, him and Rob kind of talked a little bit. I mean, I know they're friends, so I'm sure that they talked a little bit. You might want to ask him about it, but I know I wanted to kind of harken back to the video games as well. All right, so what do you think the takeaway from what what he had to say was? It's going to be a Guy Ritchie film. <laughs> um, he really wanted to use that sort of style. I asked him about sort of the as- atmospheric thriller aspect of it, and, and he really likes thrillers and horror films, and, and he really delved into that to create this um, this environment. So I, I think the directing style is going to be very different than what we've seen before. I think that's what we can take away. Uh, next up, let's uh, let's hear what uh, voice director Andrea Romano had to say. I'm Andrea Romano. I'm the voice director. So, so you've been um, a voice director um, with various Batman projects for decades now, and in those decades, you know, there's been some new people, there's been some familiar faces. Someone like Kevin Conroy, who you've been working with since the '90s, do you two have an understanding of what you want from each other? Kind of an unspoken thing. In fact, that's absolutely true. Where before I even have gotten half the direction out, Kevin's already. I got it. I got it. I'm there. And and most of the time, I just have to sleep and get off the button and let him do what he does. He knows the character so well. He's everybody's Batman. You know, everybody's sort of we say Batman, the voice of Batman. Everybody thinks Kevin Conroy, despite the fact that I've actually cast 17 different wow. Batman over the years. An episode of Justice League that may have a Batman in it that's not supposed to be the same Batman from the animated series. So, and I found that out from a fan here at Comic Con. They said, "No, he's cast Batman 17 times." No, cool. How do you feel the void of you no know, Mark Hamill on the Joker? Um, not that I know of. It breaks my heart. Friend of the never told me he wasn't going to do it anymore. I, I heard about it through, I don't know, somebody told me or read it online or something. Um, Corey Baker, who is doing the voice, does a very good impression. A very good impression of um, Mark. So the voice, I think, for the audience, the voice will not have that big change for them. But in fact, it is not smart and makes it that. How do you approach it whenever you cast a character like Harley Quinn or the Joker, who are different than your usual uh, actors, but you do have Kevin Conroy turning as Batman? Is there a little bit of a sync up that you need to deal with? That's an interesting question. Um, I, my first question always when I'm given a job, because I'm a freelance director, so they come me, Andrea, we have this project, Batman Arc. Um, my first question is, can I use any of the actors I've used before? Can I use Kevin Conroy? Can I use whoever has been Harley a certain character? Exactly. And sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say no. Sometimes the actors that I would like to use that have been given the okay are not available during the production period. We have a limited window because we do the voice first and then they take it off to animate. If I can't get the actor before it's got to be shipped, I've got to recast. I've got to find somebody else to do it. And so, um, yes, there is sort of that crossover where sometimes it is some of the classic voices, if you will, and then there's new voices brought in there. Um, sweet uh, Hinden Walsh is like Harley Quinn in this case. I've worked with her for years. She was my um, uh, Starfire in uh, yeah. Teen Titans. Who I met by one of those strange casting stories. Uh, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. Someone said you've got to meet this actress. She's an adult, but she sounds like a kid. I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure, I believe that. Yeah. She calls me on the phone. Hi, Hinden Walsh. I was told to call you. I'm like. 
how old are you? <laughs> and in fact, she sounds still like a 13, 14, 15 year old, her speaking voice. But she's got to be 30 years old. But she just has one of those voices that has stayed very young. The great benefit to that, it's easier to direct an adult because it's a new language that a kid would understand. So, um, but she's a terrific Harley. I love her Harley. You've um, been in Gotham City for a while too, and Batman's world. How has your understanding of it changed in all these years? Do you still look at the characters the same way you did years ago? I know them a little bit better. Because I didn't read comic books as a young girl, I had to learn on the job. And so when there was a project that was from a graphic novel or a series of comic books, I would read them as background material. And then I had, you know, Bruce Tim to call upon for he's the best reference guy I know, or James Tucker or Jay Oliva or whoever could give me information. So I have learned just like anybody first coming into anything. The more information I have, the more I got to learn about. So I think I understand the characters better than I ever have before. And I hope to continue to learn about them because once we stop learning, they stop getting interesting. None of us want to keep redoing the same thing. All right. What do we think the takeaway from that is? Uh, Romano has been working on a number of well, DC projects for as long as we've been ex in existence and many years before that. So what do you think this what makes this film different? Well, it definitely benefited her, uh, her years of experience, because as, as as brought up in the interview, because she's been doing this for so long, and so has Kevin Conroy, they have a relationship with each other as, you know, a voice actor and voice director, where each know what the other wants from them, that was able to get the best performance out of uh, the voice actors in the movie. All right, so then finally, uh, let's listen what producer James Tucker had to say. James Tucker of Arkham, uh, Batman Assault on Arkham. Yes. Um, I'm sorry, it's off. Uh, this is the first, after the last couple of movies, it's been sort of New 52 and sort of the design and everything. What's it like to jump from that era of the DC Comics iterations until the, uh, the Batman set of games? Uh, not liberating. I mean, after, I mean, the way we're going to do it is we'll probably do two, two New 52 inspired. Uh, movies, and then the third one will be a different one. So, um, so you know, it's, it's good to have that break, and then when we go back to the new 52 stuff, we'll, we'll come back refreshed, and other things happen. So, no, it's great. It's great to have the variety, because I, even though I'm enjoying what we're doing with that stuff, I like being able to do some of the other stuff, too. So, this way, we're not locked into just doing only that. So, it's been great. It's been great. Arkham Games have established a very recognizable aesthetic, yeah. and and it looks like you guys have created your own sort of spin on that aesthetic in the movie. How did you try to bridge that? In well, we knew, since we knew we didn't have the budget for a full CGI movie, you know, like like they do for their trailers and everything, um, we decided to take our inspiration from their development art. So the kind of art that they use to create stuff before they go to full CG, we look to that. So we got our color palettes, our design senses, um, just the whole tonal quality of the piece came from that stuff. Um, and the video game people sent us a lot of references, and we, you know, we tried to mimic or at least adapt because you know some things for 2D animation you can't have that extra layer of detail that CGI stuff has, where you can just freeze frame it and see dots and <laughs> bumps and all that stuff. So um, so with, through the color and the, the designs, the uh, character designs, the background color, um, 
the paint, the sound design. We wanted to echo what the video games have done. Uh, so this is a more of a Suicide Squad movie. We kind of did take liberties to make it our own thing. So it, it, it may, it's part of the Arkham world, but it has its own sense and unique sense of flavor. And I think if we end up doing a sequel, it'll, it'll, we'll follow up with that. So we'll have more to say on that. We'll, it'll, it'll probably become its own thing and not so much the video game thing, but we'll still try to fit within their continuity. How long does it take? In general, from beginning to end. You know, it's weird because people ask me that, and because I'm working on multiple movies, like we're premiering this one now. We're working on the script for the one in 2016, which you can't talk about. And then one we finished like four months ago will not premiere until after Christmas. So it's like trying to keep, you know. Everything's in a different uh, place, meaning some things haven't started, some things are finished, but you guys aren't going to see it for a while. And then, you know, this movie, which was finished like, we finished, we finished this in February, and now it's showing. The first time it's showing is now. So the schedules are very odd. So it, there's a. So it's hard to say what the time frame is. I'd say between eight months, from completion, from start to completion, is about eight months. But then you can finish it, and they will hold on to it for four more months. So, you know. And I started this. We started actually talking about this probably in 2011. So, when Arkham City first came out. Yeah. Yeah, we knew we were going to do it as early as that. We didn't know what the story was. But, you know, if you start talking about it around that time, you wait for the green light. The green light came in probably around the end of 2012. 2013, we spent the whole time, you know, eight months of that doing it. While we were doing the finishing up Flashpoint, as well as, you know, Justin Lee War and Son of Batman, so it's all happening at the same time. So it's, it's uh, confusing. I remember getting the impression at one point during one of these interviews that this was basically going to be a Suicide Squad film that Batman was barely going to be in, but that the name Batman was on the cover because it sold. It's, it's pretty much an accurate representation of what it is. All right, so what, what do you think the takeaway from James Tucker's interview was? You know, one of the more interesting things that he said is is the the timeline of how these movies come together and the fact that he was probably working on this movie in 2011 when Arkham City came out. And just to, to think about when they are told these things are going to happen, the fact that there are going to be two New 52 movies per every kind of original, if you can say that with bunny quotes, movie that comes out. Just the scheduling of, of how they are doing this. And, and this seems like a, a very different styled movie than we've seen in the past it is darker i feel like even some of the scenes that have been released are, are a bit more gruesome even if we compare it to the joker killing himself by <laughs> breaking his neck but uh yeah just the, I, I was just astounded by by the way you know they're they're putting out work and that you know it was kind of he probably had to think about you know what was this movie about because i haven't done it uh in a while 
Right, and then some of the cast members that we talked to, we talked to Kevin Conroy, obviously the voice of Batman. Troy Baker is back this time for the voice of Joker. And John DiMaggio, who plays King Shark. So let's listen to their interviews. I guess the big question is, is this Batman any different from how you've done it in the past? Well, the, the, the challenge to me has been to keep it fresh, and to, keep it, to keep it real, and to not get stale. Um, so is it different? No. Is it, I hope, as good as the one I did 23 years ago? I hope so. The, the trick to me has been to keep it, keep it fresh. And the wonderful thing is, working with Andrea Romano for so long, she keeps the perspective for me. You know, the second, the thing about Batman is that the audience knows more about the character than I do, for the most part. The audience is so devoted, and the legacy is so huge that they come up to me and they go, you know, like, oh, in episode 341, when you said such and such to the Joker, and I think, I don't know what this person's talking about, but it's that devotion from the fan base that if you're false at any moment in anything, they'll nail you with it, you know what I mean? They'll hear it in a second. And having Andreas around is great because she won't let you do that. She's a great sensor, you know what I mean? A filter to to keep you from getting lazy. Because after a while, everyone gets a little lazy, you know, and you kind of fall into traps. Um, and you can't let yourself. She keeps you in line. But that's been the challenge for me, is to keep it to keep it consistent, to keep it true to the character. The trick for me also has been that Batman, the voice of Batman, is not the performance. Bruce Wayne is the performance. That's the face he presents to the world. That's the suit he puts on. The suit of armor. Is, that's the mask. When he's alone in the cave, that, that sound is that place he goes. That's the comfortable sound. That's that's his base. You know what I mean? So that's if I see that as my home base, then it's a very instinctive place I go to to create that sound, and it it stays real. And the Bruce Wayne is the the character. Who came up with the different uh, Bruce Wayne and Batman voice when you were doing the animated series? Was that your idea or Andrea's? Oh, okay. It's my idea. Well, excellent idea then. Because actors, actors always look for ways to complicate their lives. You know what I mean? They do. And directors usually are trying to get you to simplify. But actors always want to make things more complicated because it makes your job more fun, you know? And, um... So I just thought it'd be fun to have two different voices, you know. Because I thought, look, the guy is the wealthiest man in Gotham. He's the most eligible bachelor. He lives in the biggest house. He owns half the city. Everybody knows him. He puts on a cape and a cowl and no one knows it's him. Come on. That's ridiculous. There's got to be more. In order to suspend belief, there's got to be more to it than that. So I thought, he's got to have a whole different persona that he puts on. So for me, the voice was very important. This movie is—it seems darker. It has more psychological thriller aspects, maybe an atmospheric horror to it. Yeah. Were there any difficulties in any of your recordings? Just like a particular moment that was hard to record? Well, the characters, the villain characters, are very 
are very diabolical and are very evil. There's a lot of darkness in this story, more so than I was used to in the previous Batman stories. This one, these Suicide Squad is, they're, they're seriously demented. I mean, they're very um, and so it goes to an element of, of the Batman universe that doesn't often get visited in terms of that kind of violence. It's interesting. It's interesting. How does that change your performance then? Or does it? Well, it doesn't change my performance. It's just in terms of working on the show, it was fascinating to watch. You know? Um, the trick for me has been to be consistent throughout. Um, all along. Even if the tone of the piece or the villains Yeah. Yeah, regardless of, of what the villains are doing, it's for me to be consistent. There's such a clear moral compass in Batman, and to never lose sight of that is really important. You know, because there are a dozen different ways you can play a lot, and to always make the choice, the right choice, is is tricky, and you always have to choose the moral choice. You know, the it's it's a, it's been a very interesting guy to play that way. Is there anything different about doing video games versus doing the anime? Oh, you have no idea. You have no idea. It's it's a whole different world because in the shows you have other actors to work with, to bounce off of, to interact with. It's like doing a radio play. It's fun. In the games, you're alone in a booth for four hours of time, doing line after line after line after line after line after line after line, thousands and thousands and thousands of lines, depending on how the game is played, depending on how they're going to program it, depending on the algorithms. They need thousands of takes of thousands of lines, and it takes years to build the game and you're alone and just to keep the character fresh and to stay awake <laughs> you know it's it's not why you become an actor to be honest but it's a fascinating kind of challenge to have. and the result is so incredible the games are so amazing to, to watch play for people to play but the creation of them they're really technical marvels you know they're really created by the technicians and the actors breathe life into the characters, but we've got to give them literally thousands of takes of versions of lines, depending on how it's going to play. So it's mountains of work. Is it refreshing then to come back to, even though it's a oh, video oh, game yeah. version of the character, it's an animated movie instead of a video game? Oh, absolutely. Any kind of animated movie is so much fun to come back to. I wish I had a little more to do in this one. This is really largely about the Suicide Squad. But sometimes, you know, Batman can be a man of few words. So some, some shows I don't get a lot to do in, you know. 
So I have to do a lot with a little. <laughs> well, I, I like he as an actor. I remember seeing a movie you did called Island City. Ah! Yeah, and Isn't I'm like, great? where did where did you go? You're in bad, you're in, you know, you're a voice, but I, that's great. This is where you found your niche. Yeah, I did a lot of uh, I, I did a lot of on camera. Yeah. Okay, trained at Juilliard. I was a Broadway actor before this all happened. I did a lot of on camera, but uh, you know, life is what happens to you while you're making other plans, as John Lennon said. I that's not the way my career went. Yeah. It went in this direction. But I love doing on camera. And I think I'm a pretty attractive guy. <laughs> God knows why I didn't get more. But uh, no, this is just the direction it went. So there's, you've been doing Devin for 20 some odd years, been doing so many different versions. Does it ever get any difficult, any more difficult, or do you have you found your group and it's, it's pretty much like you know you can do it? As I said before, the difficulty is not letting it get stale, because it can get stale. The difficulty has been keeping it, keeping it alive, keeping it fresh, um, and that that has been challenging. Um, but I think I've done. Have you found the Batman voice deep into your life? Do you find yourself just talking in the Batman voice when you're getting some cereal? Yeah, in my sleep. <laughs> I do have friends ask me to call and like tell their kids to do their homework and stuff. <laughs> call up out of the blue and go, if you don't do your homework, I'm going to come and get you. Be, <laughs> it is a powerful voice to be able to control. Did you share any booth time with CCH Pounder? And if so, what was it like for you? It's kind of been a while since you got some mail from the I have been a fan of her work since Baghdad Cafe. Did you ever see that? Oh, that was her first film. And it's a, it's a kind of an art movie. It's a cult movie from the 70s. And she was fantastic. And uh, I've been a fan of her work since then. So um, I've known her for many years, and uh, she's a really talented uh, performer. Um, yeah, I was happy to see that she was going to be back in this. So it was fun seeing her again after so long. So how she was she was a man of war in the Justice League series. She was a man of war in Public Enemies, and she's a man of war in this. So you pretty much match up with her each and every time. So I guess you two are sort of the, the classic versions of those characters. And you know, along with um, they don't have Mark Hamill for this one. But how do you feel to have a returning voice for a certain character to play off? It's it's there. There is a wonderful relationship you develop with certain actors where you can just kind of fit into a groove and automatically start playing. Um, it happens with Mark whenever we get together. We just we just. We can sort of define each other. You know what I mean? You kind of fit into group. But then in this, it was interesting. I didn't think anyone would ever be able to do Joker as well as Mark Hamill did. And then I saw Heath Ledger. And I thought, oh my God, this is just taking it to a whole new world. And then I met Troy Baker and heard him do it. So everyone brings something different to it. It's always surprising when you hear another actor's take on something that it's always something you didn't think of. You know, you just think, wow, this is just as good, it's just different, you know? It's a different actor doing it. Um, so there's a wonderful comfort to, to working with the same actors over a long time, but there's also something very stimulating about having someone new come into the world, like Troy did. Um, it just jars you, gives you something new to react to. Um, does that answer your question? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, it's interesting because you talk about, you know, different versions of the characters. It kind of just reminds me of, uh, in The Brave and the Bold, you played the Phantom Stranger alongside Derek Bayer's Batman. What was that like to hear somebody else to your, your character that you voiced so long with? What was that like to play off of that? Someone different. <laughs> I just thought it was something really smarmy I could say, but I won't. I'm just joking. I'm just we won't tell. No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Um, no, it's so yeah, really. You no, know, it's so interesting. I mean, think of all the different people who played Batman in the in the live action films. There have been so many different versions of it. Which at first I thought this is so bizarre that Warner Brothers is doing this. Why don't they have someone establish the franchise? And it was really ended up being brilliant because so many different people have had so many different takes on it. I can't wait to see what Ben Affleck does. With it. Um, we'll see what happens. Christian Bale was fantastic. I liked Michael Keaton. Um, they've all been interesting for different reasons. So it was interesting having someone else uh, in the Brave and the Bold do the voice to, to kill. Uh, it's, you never own the role, you rent it. You know what I mean? And I've had the opportunity to rent it for a long time, which has been wonderful. Uh, but it's always interesting to hear what someone else does with it. So, um, straight follow-up to Arthur Morgan? Yeah. Do anything else with the voice for the gym? No, I mean, I mean, uh, I didn't want to mess with whatever got me that job. Uh, you don't want to go, now watch what I'm going to do. Uh, and what's great is when you sit down across the glass from literally the director that, that the 12-year-old and me said, one day I'm going to work with that woman, and the person that's been directing this franchise for over 20 years, you don't necessarily need to do anything different, just listen. She's going to guide you. She clearly knows what she's doing. So that was a banner day for me, is to be directed by Andrea Romano in a Batman, you know, uh, story, playing the Joker. That's, that's like the best thing. And to go side by side or toe to toe with my Batman. Kevin Conroy's my Batman. So this is kind of a, this is kind of the Himalayas, man. I'm looking down on the world. That's this is pretty cool. This movie brings back like the Arkham universe that comes originally from the game, right? And you just did that the last game, Arkham Origins, that's right. different. So what's it like being like the Joker for this universe? Wow. I mean, I, I think we share that, you know, because I mean, clearly Mark uh, did that for the Arkham universe as well. I mean, whenever you think Arkham style, you think Joker, and you think Mark Hamill. Thanks, buddy. So I think. I think the second I start thinking in those terms, I kind of lose focus, just for me, because it's so ADD, and that's a really big shiny thing that's happening in my periphery. Um, so what I try to focus on is the story that we're telling, and as long as they'll let me do it, I'll do it. Uh, I think it's literally one of the most compelling characters ever. I mean, this, this, this is like some Greek this, this goes back to like Homer and Odysseus, the kind of stories that we're telling with this. So I, I love doing the joke. But I don't want to think too, too much about it. Again, my head was. Somebody else about that, so yeah. Well, I've, I've heard about you know actors who play the Joker having to go, sometimes having to go to a bad place to be able to play that character. Is, is that something you've encountered? Well, as the Joker said, we're all just one bad day away. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely think that, man. There's 
you don't want to live too long in this skin, you know, at a time. You need to come up for air. And I think everybody knows their own little secret about the Joker. Like, Heath Ledger knew his little secret about the Joker. Mark Hamill knew his little secret about the Joker. I think that's the key. Because I know my little secret about the Joker, and that's special to just me. And that's the fingerprint that you leave on the character. But yeah, you can definitely, uh, you definitely need a shower sometimes after the session. Have you ever, like, uh, talked to Mark Hamill about your interpretation or his interpretation? I've talked to Mark endlessly about his interpretation, uh, and he will talk for days about his. Uh, I've never asked him about what he thinks about what I did. I don't want to know if he doesn't like it. Um, he's incredibly gracious, and he also understands that this character is bigger than any one actor. He's just as much a fanboy over the character as, you know, as anybody. Um, so, I don't know. I, I would like to say that, I'd like to think that he likes what I did, because truly what I'm doing is honoring the incredible groundwork that he did. He is the giant upon whose shoulders I am. Andrea Romano, um, Kevin Conroy, and uh, Dimaggio were all three of them when we interviewed them commended your performance on the Joker. So they all had good things to say about you until you got here. That's huge, and I love what Johnny did in Under the Red Hood. I loved his Joker, man. That was, that was amazing. So, and that's the same thing. It's, it's, there's no competition about this character. It's just kind of like everybody puts their own little fingerprint and passes it on to the next person. Do you have a favorite Joker story? Killing Joe. Absolutely, dude. That, that, I know, right? I put my head down on it, too. It's just... It, to me, that is the best prospect of who the Joker is. And again, that's the whole thing. Everybody's just one bad day away. Um, so I'm glad that we kind of got to pull some of those elements into uh, Salt on Earth, too. I loved you in Last of Us, first of all. I loved your performance in that. So you said this is your Batman. Day one, what were you feeling just walking into that booth, ready to record? Waiting to get fired. <laughs> Literally. I was like, I'm just going to do Scratch. And then they're going to, we ready? So... I told somebody earlier, like, don't pinch me because I don't want to wake up. Yes! Thank you, guys. So what is um, King Shark up to in Assault on Arkham? Well, he's part of the Suicide Squad. He wants to uh, do his thing, which is basically just be a badass and, and you know, and, and hurt, maim, kill whatever he's doing as far as being a villain is concerned. That's that's his, that's what he's doing, pretty much. So he's just rocking and rolling in Suicide Squad. Big old face with the metal teeth. <laughs> How do you even begin to voice a guy who is basically a shark? Um, with this... You know, you look at the you look at the character design, and he's just got that huge mouth, and it's 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 just so throaty. You know, you just look at it; he's so massive that that naturally he's gonna do something over there. So you just kind of, I mean, that's I don't know. I guess I just kind of second nature to me, but uh, it's you know, you just go with it, and you do you know do a couple different things, and if, you see what sticks, see what the the, the uh, writers and the production staff think about it, you know? And then we go from there. Do you often just see the character design and, like, something comes to you and you feel like this is what they're supposed to sound like? Um, yeah, pr pretty much, you know? Or you say, you know, what, what what were you thinking? Like, what kind of a, you know... Because, you know, you could look at something and be like, well, I can do this, 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 and this, and that's too much to bring to the table. Like, you know, I can try five things! You know, nobody wants to usually hear that, so... You know, it, 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 it all depends, but, you know, 
you get a little direction from the people and uh, from the people running it, and then, and, you, and you go from there. Been the Joker, Toy Man, Team Shark, any DC villains still on your to-do list? Nope. <laughs> I'm kind of good to go. I, you know, people are like, that, that's a question that's that that I get. You know, like, is there anybody that you that you haven't played that you want to play? And it's like, no, not really. Like, I, I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty fortunate in that I've been able to play a lot of different characters and a lot of big characters and. You know, like, I mean, with the Joker, I mean, you know, getting to play an iconic character like that, it's, it's great. And by the way, um, I think Troy Baker's Joker is awesome. Um, Troy and I worked together on uh, Generator Rex. Oh. Yeah. We, and uh, Troy's, he's just so good. He's just, he's just a talent, talent, just an absolute talent. He does a really great uh, Sam Elliott. I don't know if you've heard him do Sam Elliott, but it's beef. It's just, it's perfect. He has this Texas, Texas drawl that's just too funny. But it's great, you know. It's, you know, and 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 any any time Andre Romano comes crawling or call, calling, not crawling, she never <laughs> whenever she comes calling, I, I crawl to her. That's what I mean. But yeah, whatever. You know, I'm down. A lot of your biggest characters are not humans. Uh, dog, robot, now shark. Uh, do you think that? That's a niche you found. Why do you think that you get those roles a lot? Um, I don't know, cause maybe I, as an actor, the people respect the way I, I have a sense of play to bring to it, and just you know, if something doesn't stick, I'm not, I'm not gonna sit there and go, well, I really like my choice. Like, who cares? You know, like, change it up. Let's go. We got to try something else. Let's go. You know, and I, you know, and I, I'm, I'm pretty willing to, to you know, to jump in and. And, and, and play and, and do whatever, you know. I, uh, I don't know what it is. I've just been fortunate enough to be able to do that. So. Do you find yourself enjoying playing villains? Yeah, I love playing villains. I love playing villains. Um, they're a lot more fun than the hero because you can just get away with all sorts of crazy stuff. And I love that. That's awesome. Are you willing to say outrageous once before you go? Outrageous! <laughs> yes, old chum. Outrageous! Yes. So the Riddler, huh? Yeah. How'd you get involved with that? Did you want it? Or did they I've, you know, it's it? funny. It's almost like I psychically somehow willed it to happen. I love Batman. I love villains. I've always wanted to play a super villain. And I got a phone call out of nowhere asking me to play the Riddler, which is a true dream come true. Did you work with uh, Andrea Romano before? I have. I've worked with her a few times. She's absolutely fantastic. One of the greatest directors I've ever worked with, whether it's voiceover or, or moving image. And it was, it was a great time. We had a wonderful experience. Wait, like, what, what do you like uh, most about voicing the Riddler? I like the idea. I, I love the Riddler because he's sort of so conceited in the sense that he thinks he's the smartest person in the room, and so it's always very fun to play a brazen character that ultimately gets caught. Uh, there's a certain comedy to that, which is really fun. Do you have any influences in your Riddler, like uh, Frank Gorshin or um, Jim Carrey? I'm a giant Batman fan, and I from back from the a a Adam West series. I, so I, in the back of my head, I, I've heard all the Riddlers, but I didn't really try to 
recreate anything. I more look to uh, P.T. Barnum and oddly Houdini and some like showmen from the turn of the century that I wanted to inform this Riddler and also to make him a little bit more uh, obsessive compulsive. So a little bit of Larry David in there, if anything. That's an interesting mix. Yeah. So what is the Riddler up to in this movie? The Riddler is really having the time of his life in this movie in the sense that he's he's sort of working for Batman, he's working for the Suicide Squad, but ultimately he's only he's just trying to mess with everybody. He's just a super deranged son of a gun who's trying his hardest to, to just create mayhem, which is the best type of superhero in there is. Was there any mandate to try to, like, you know, make it like the, the video game in terms of your performance? Not really. And again, I always try to take the freedom of, like, when I'm fortunate enough to be asked to do something like this, I think it's my responsibility to almost try to create something new. So I didn't, I did not uh, study the video game or anything really prior to this. Obviously, the script dictates a lot of this, but, but there are two pretty big, I don't, I don't know, points that are interpretations of the Riddler. One is where he's more kind of calculated and scheming and wants to outsmart Batman, prove something. Then the other one, he's just out there Daffy Duck crazy. Yeah. Which do you prefer? You know, truthfully, I prefer uh, on the spectrum more towards the Daffy Duck craziness, but the hope was to bring a subtlety of a, sort of a perfect mix of the two and to have him sort of more motivated, less by, uh, less by sort of, I don't know what the word is, pride, and more by obsessiveness and compulsion and being like, he, he's not asking these questions because he wants to with Batman, but he's asking them because he's literally shaking and paralyzed by the fear that someone might not answer this question, and that is the only the only thing worse than being caught is someone not answering this question. So it's more of approaching the riddles as a sickness. Yeah. On Criminal Minds, you deal a lot with obsessive compulsive. Did yeah. you find yourself uh, going back to a lot of what you've done before to bring into the Riddler? Interesting. Um, not necessarily. It's in it is it is sort of interesting to me in the sense that I play a character in Criminal Minds that's also very smart, but would never consider himself smart. Whereas the Riddler knows he's smart. There are also vast differences in the sense that one wants to help people and save lives, and the other wants to destroy the entire world. So they're, in some ways, opposite sides of the same odd coin, I guess you might say. But no real um, comparison otherwise. They both have uh, noses. That's about it. <laughs> you see yourself playing the Riddler again. I would love that. I, lo I, I love stepping into his shoes, and I'm, I mean, again, I've always wanted to play a villain. There's no villain I think I'm more suited to play than the Riddler. <laughs> so I'm, I'm absolutely just flabbergasted that I get to do it. All right, so what do you think is the most unique thing about this group of voice actors compared to some of the other other ones i mean conroy is on this but this isn't really necessarily part of the dc animated universe mm -hmm. what what do you think makes this film different according to what they all said well it's definitely a mix of new and old because you have you know conroy the classic batman but uh it's troy baker oh. as the joker and actually um Somebody told the story that Mark Hamill's kid was playing the Arkham Origins game, and when Mark came in and he heard, um, you know, that Joker voice, he said, "I don't remember recording this," which was a testament to how good Troy Baker uh, portrays the Mark Hamill version of the Joker. 
And there's also a funny moment in the interview where uh, he says that the killing joke is his favorite Joker story, and Stella puts her head down, and he uh, Troy Baker, misunderstanding, says, I know, I put my head down to that story, too. Isn't it great? All right. uh, yeah, I, I would also comment, I mean, you have an original, original Kevin Conroy. You have Troy Baker, who it was very open, the fact that he was being Mark Hamill being Joker. So it's very much a swan song to him. And then, you know, Matthew Gray Goobler, who is playing... Riddler and of course John DiMaggio who is playing King Shark they're obviously having these very original takes on it and I think Goobler is interesting just because he's on Criminal Minds he has this compulsive character on there so he's able to bring that and just hearing him talk about what his take was on the Riddler was was pretty interesting so it's like you've got original you've got someone you know swan song to another and then you've got people um, originating a role in their mind all right, so that was Batman Assault on Arkham. Now let's uh, let's hear from another comic creator. Let's uh, hear what Peter Tomasi had to say about Batman and Robin. Hey, this is Stella with the Batman Universe. I'm here with Peter Tomasi, current writer of Batman and Robin. Are you Batmaned out yet with all the stuff that's been going on? <laughs> you can never be Batmaned out. It's uh, it's pretty cool. It's so, the, the booth here at DC is awesome. They've got some great uh, movie props and uh, suits, and it's it, it's it's pretty cool when you can you know you walk in and thinking okay okay here we go another con, and then you look around you and you say wow. I'm, I'm a part of this Batman history now, and as a kid, when you, all you can think about is, you know, going in a Halloween costume and enjoying all the bat stuff, and now being a part of the team that brings out a Batman book every month, it's it's pretty cool. So your title has sort of been in flux a little bit because it's always been Batman and blank. You know, you had Two Face and Wonder right. Woman. Finally, this recent issue, it was Batman and Robin again. Yeah. Are you teasing us a little bit, or can we read a little something into that? Uh, you definitely can read a lot into it. Okay. There, by the end of the year in December, we'll have uh, there'll be a Robin back in the mix. Okay. Dynamic duo uh, will be out in the streets of Gotham again as of December. Robin Rises Alpha will be the issue that uh, the dynamic duo uh, will be back in force again. Will we see that Robin in other titles, or primarily just in yours? Um, after December, the the Robin who is you know will be back, will be will be there is the Robin that you'll see, you know, across the rest of the Bat Universe. Title. Okay. So he's going to Apocalypse, and I think this title is really a lot about a relationship between a father and a son. And we saw Darkseid's son. Are we going to see Darkseid at all? Uh, no spoilers, I okay. guess, but uh, I would say if you're going to Apocalypse, there may be a good chance that Darkseid appears, because you hit upon that, which is like, you know, when you saw Calabac, yeah. of course, there's the sun, so I, the theme of fathers and sons is, is prevalent across the book, so that's a good assumption. Okay. Well, to what extent will events that happen on Apocalypse affect other other books and, and even other Bat titles? Hmm. Um... I would say that they'll definitely affect our title big time, and uh, and from there, who knows? It'll be a. I don't know of anything repercussion-wise happening with the other bat books at this point, but it'll mostly be occurring within our our titles. Okay. So we saw the return of the lightning bugs, and it was a very emotional scene in the beginning of your run, right. and now we've done it again, but a completely different circumstance and tone. Can you go just talk a little bit about that and what it was like to write it and come up with that and your thoughts on it? Yeah, that, that scene was important to touch back. I always, sometimes when you write, when you're writing stuff, you put little notes down to yourself, and I did write 
in that issue that I originally wrote with the lightning bug scene with Damien when he killed one and you know squished the, the back end of it. I wrote on my margins just to say, make sure we mirror this later on in the run. So when I went back to it, I was trying to think of a good spot, and that seemed like a perfect moment because I don't know. How, I'm trying. To, I don't know how it's interpreted when people are reading it right now in Batman and Robin 33. But when he destroys that, when he destroys the uh, tombstone, yeah. it's not out of rage or anger or anything, or even loss. What he was doing in, in Bruce's mind was, you know, he was literally in that mission. Now it's clear to him. I'm bringing Damien back. And I'm going to try my best to do it, and we'll see what happens. And so he, he takes away this memorial to basically say, hey, you know, Damien, in my mind, lives right now. And whether I can bring him back in this journey is anybody's guess. But at that point in time, that's what his emotions are on that, in that grave at that time. So he doesn't want help from the Justice League, but at the very end, you kind of get a shocker and you see the core Batman family again. Yes. What are their relationships going to be like? Because they, it's sort of been in turmoil, what, with death of the family right. and then even them appearing in your own title. Yes. Some have been good, some yeah. are not good. So what is it going to be like them helping him out? Uh, you'll, in issue 34 next month, you'll see in August, uh, the main factor was always to, you know, in death of the family, it was important to you know they we, you know they took apart the family. So my job really was to start thinking about how do I want to rebuild those relationships. So something of this magnitude could be really cool, will be really cool to bring those bring those relationships back to a to a better place. Hopefully. Okay. Are we going to see Carrie Kelly again? Because it's been a little while since we've seen her. It has. It has. I can't really say it well, much about. He it, made a face though, since you can't <laughs> I, see. I made a face. I yeah. did. I did. I really. I made a face. Um, yeah. I can't say much about the Carrie Kelly scenario right now. Okay. What are you looking forward to most? Anything that you can kind of tease us that you were super excited about writing? Honestly, I can't wait to, to get to January. I can't wait. It, you know, when you write a story like this and it has its somber moments and emotional moments, you know, it, it, you're in a certain headspace. And I'm really looking forward to having a Robin back next to Dame, to, to, Rob, to Batman and sort of really just, uh, you know, have fun again, you know. One thing with the, the Damien and, and Batman relationship when you started off, it was really a, a huge learning curve, just them getting used to each other and Damien learning the ropes. With this new Robin, is it going to be the same way or are they just going to hit the ground running and they'll have a really good relationship starting off? Uh, it's a very good question, but one I can't really answer. Oh, bummer. <laughs> <Nice> okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, so what was the takeaway from the Tomasi interview? Oh, Tomasi. I sure did try to get him to give me some spoilers. <laughs> but it was he was not having it. Uh, the the fact that whatever is going to happen on Apocalypse is going to have uh, pretty wide ramifications throughout the universe. Um, there is a Robin coming back. He doesn't really talk about what that Robin would be like. I try to press him and say, are we going to hit the ground running with this relationship? Or is it going to be like when we started Batman and Robin New 52 where there's a growing period for both of those characters and, and them together? And he wouldn't really talk about that because I think it would shine too much light on the character. Asked about Carrie Kelly. He didn't say anything, but he, he sort of smirked and made a face, which I noted in the interview. Uh, so I think maybe she's coming back, but you can't do anything. So I feel like there's a big moment coming in Batman and Robin history. And um, it's just, you know, you can only look ahead to the, the solicits. And, and he really wouldn't give you too much besides that. All right. 
Let's just jump straight into another comic creator uh, with uh, the current writer on Batwoman, Mark Andreco. Hello, it's Stella for the Batman Universe, and I'm here with Mark Andreco, the current writer of Batwoman. How so far has been your con? Uh, good. It feels like it's Sunday and it's only Friday, so that's kind of weird. It feels like in the you know in the horror movies when you run down a hallway and the hallway gets longer as you get faster. It's inexplicably feeling slow, but uh, it's. It's mild this year. There aren't as many people. It's substantially less. Normally, by this time in the con, I have no voice, so it's uh, it's still crowded, but it's not crazy running of the bulls crowded this That's year. Good. So, and I hope in your visions you don't see two twins at the end of the hall. Oh, that would be awesome. That would make my hotel immensely more interesting. So, Batwoman, this title has been so heavily steeped in supernatural elements, almost making it a Penny Dreadful title. What is it about Kate that really attracts her to these supernatural things, and, and why are they attracted to her? Well, you know, that was all from when Greg and J.H. were doing the book, the whole, the, you know, the, uh, the crime Bible, and, you know, when J.H. was doing the book with the, uh, the, the Mexican myth, the, right. the drowning woman, yeah. and all that sort of thing. Um, I tried to get away from that for my first arc, just a sort of a palate cleanser. But uh, we're getting back into it in the new, in the new, the new solicitations with issue 35. You can see that there's a group of characters called the Unknowns, and that uh, it's going to be the Demon, Clayface, Ragman, and an unknown female character. Okay. Uh, so yeah, we're going to delve back into it. It's going to be Batwoman is going to be definitely more of the, uh, a horror book in Gotham, but it's not just going to be supernatural horror because okay. some of you know some of the real people that are, are, are scarier than supernatural, like, like Zaz. I mean, Zaz is terrifying, right. and he's not supernatural. The Joker's terrifying; he's not supernatural. Sometimes humans are more terrifying than anything supernatural. So it'll be exploring the darker, more darker corners of the universe, but okay. it won't just be uh, it won't be Justice League dark with Batwoman. Gotcha. So you're no stranger to strong female characters. What was the transition like? And I mean, it's been a while since you wrote Kate Spencer, but going from someone like Kate Spencer to this Kate that we have. Well, you know, Kate Kane was so well developed and well drawn before I got to her that it was easy. You know, it was very, very easy to pick up the mantle and continue with her because she was such a fully realized character. And you know, and I enjoy the 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 challenges that she as a character faces. I think exploring. That stuff grounds, having a more realistic exploration of a character grounds some of the crazier stuff. It balances out really well. So she's just a character that I enjoyed as a fan, and when the opportunity came to write her, I jumped at the chance, because you know, I figured if anybody was going to screw her up, I wanted it to be me. Okay. Yeah. So Kate and Maggie, I think it's one of the more realistic couples that we have, and I've loved, to, I've loved watching their journey. Can you tease a little bit about what the future is going to entail? Because there's some, some issues, and then even in 32, here comes an awkward love interest. So what are you trying to do, break them up? An awkward former love interest. Okay. Just because you've run into your ex-girlfriend or boyfriend doesn't mean you're instantly going to sleep together. Um, like any relationship, there's challenges. I mean, the, the custody issue with Maggie and her daughter, you know, really, really resonates with Kate having lost her mother at such a young age. You know, and these, you know, and ultimately these are dramatic stories. If, if you know, if they set up shop and had a bed and breakfast in Vermont and were happily ever after, nobody would want to read it. And all relationships go through challenges, and they're the challenges, you know, Things get good, things get bad, but uh, things are going to get pretty rough for a while for them. But Kate and Maggie, you know, are fairly destined to be together in some way. So it might not be now, it might not be tomorrow, but it, you know, there's they're definitely they're definitely linked. 
but the challenges are fun, and anybody that's been in a relationship knows there are there are really rough times for the good times, and you don't appreciate the good times if there aren't bad times. So, do you foresee any marriage in the future? Oh well, the future is a wide open place, so in the future, possibly. Okay. You know, it all depends on where the stories take us. You know, I kind of let the characters take me on that journey. I don't try and. I don't try and re reverse engineer events back into the characters. If it feels if it feels organic and it feels right, absolutely. So we've seen a little bit of her past in the military, and now I think bringing this former love interest, you have another opportunity to explore that. Are you going to kind of look at her her history with her and, and how it related to her life back then? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's definitely a situation of, you know, the road not taken. You know, when Kate was kicked out of West Point and her girlfriend stayed in, when she comes back, Kate sees in Sophie what her life could have been if she had not told the truth, you know? And what would, how would Kate's life have been different? She never would have been Batwoman. What would have happened? So there's definitely a, a nostalgia and a resentment and an unresolved issues. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's human and it's complicated. So yeah, we'll definitely be exploring that. The eternal title. We're about to see Batwoman appear with Jason Todd and Batgirl. Maggie's already been in there. Do you know the future of her in that title? Or do you know if there are going to be any ramifications from that title to your title? Well, the ramifications in, the, in Batman Eternal will be felt in all the Bat books. Um, Batwoman is not a, a major player in Batman Eternal. Um, but but the, that's the spine book for the Gotham universe. So the stuff that happens there will definitely be felt in our book. But you don't have to read both of them. It's not a... It's not a the book won't make sense if you don't read the other one. So, another character that's been struggling, Bet. Bet has had her ups and downs with Kate. Uh, I love it because you know Kate is doing all this out of love, but I, I don't think Bet understands. But what can you tell us about the future of her? Are we going to see her again? What's her journey going to be like? Uh, we'll see her again. Um, she she's definitely going to take some time away from the superhero stage for a while. She's seen a lot, um, and especially after what happened in the annual. She she needs some time to reevaluate where she is, who she is, what she wants to do with her life. You know, it's hard to have a life when you're a superpowered vigilante as well. You know, and she's seeing that she's seeing that directly in front of her and her cousin. So she's going to take some time away uh, and be off the stage for a while to just sort of figure out who she is and where she wants to go. Any Batman family characters that are going to pop up in your book? Um. Maybe. Okay. Maybe. That, that seems like a yes to me. Um, dream villain. What sort of dream villain or maybe even like a heroic character would you love to have in your books? This is more of a fun question. Well, if you look at the recently announced solicitations for issue 35, I get to use some dream characters. Okay. You know, the unknowns are made up of characters I really am thrilled to be writing. Okay. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. We're you. excited about it. Thank you. All right, so what was the takeaway from that? <laughs> Well, it's going to be uh, nothing you but you. There. It's, it's going to be literally nothing but you because we, we still have Tinian. I forgot the Batgirl, the Oracle one, or the Batgirl creators, which isn't even on my list. And the only other one we've got is Gotham. So I'm trying to break it up in a way where it makes sense. I gotcha. Um, uh, it, was, it was a really Kate-focused interview, as it should be. And because in this previous issue, which I believe was 
32 at the time, unless it was 33, the fact that he's bringing this love interest from the past um, is teasing not only some romantic issues between Kate and Maggie, but are we going to explore more about Kate's past? And then, of course, you know, a character that we haven't seen for a while has been... um, well, she's not Flamebird anymore. She's Hawkfire. Uh, but, uh, you know, what, what's she doing? And is she coming back? So, you know, I asked him about the marriage and what that what that's going to be like. And, and he, he's very vague about it. And he said, you know, the future is a very broad term. Because I say, is it ever going to be in the future? But, you know, the fact that it's not going to be a happy relationship and there are going to be some tense moments and they're going to have to work through it. But ultimately... Uh, you know, it's going to make the relationship stronger. So fans of that, are, I think, are going to be happy. Other characters, and, and getting back to supernatural elements, because I think he took an aside from that, just getting back to the heart of what um, Kate has been in the past seems like what he's doing. All right. So with that, we're going to jump into Gotham. We, had a, we, we attended a press junket for Gotham. We had a chance to talk with some of the people behind the show, um, first up, let's uh, hear what Danny Cannon, the executive, one of the executive producers, had to say. So, you know, when you undertake a property like this, and, yeah. you know, as daunting as it is, okay. um, you get a little bit of freedom by going back before yeah. a lot of existing, but what for you has felt the most challenging aspect of it, keep it original and allow you to also tell a story that doesn't feel really uncomfortable? Yeah, it's twofold. It's like the, the, the world needs to be relatable and credible uh, you know in order for the drama to work but at the same time it's a dream state it's it's kind of like my fantasy of what that city would be that was the fun of it was was going when uh, when I first visited New York uh, you know I had in my mind it's the French connection it's it's dog day afternoon it's it's the warriors it's you know and so I wanted to that I, I held on to that romanticism and that that dream state that and, uh, and that that's what we wanted to, to be so as long as it's credible and it's a dream state we, we can um, that's a that's a beautiful hotbed for, for drama so that that was that was our plan to make something beautiful but at the same time credible and related did you draw any particular inspiration from any comics? Did you read any comics to get sort of the feel? The I, I always remember when uh, when I when I first watched uh, I mean when I first read Watchmen that that. that that changed things for me. I don't know if it was my age uh, when I read the first Dark Knight comic book. But it was it was those comic novels changed everything. It's not just about me becoming an older guy. Uh, I was in teenage at the time. It was um, it was they matured. They were dark. They were um, adult themes. They weren't speaking down to me like I was a child anymore. Those were the ones I went back and did. You know, even though we have a young cast in this. I did want it to be relatable to all ages and, and, and talk about real adult themes and, and tragic loss and, and, you know, serious stuff. So, yeah, those are the ones I went back and read. What's the one aspect in this series that you think you've brought to the Gotham world that's not been seen before? I think a lot of it's to do with um, the first time it's not just in a flashback or it's not just um, a moment in the city. We're spending a lot of time in the city and make, uh, trying to make this city as real as we can. And we're going down the alleyways and, and, and in, in the back doorways and up the stairwells, and places that nobody's done before. And, and the people that we're finding down those alleyways and up those staircases, 
are um, sometimes the uh, villains that we're creating, and other times they're the, 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 the very, very early origins of somebody that you, you may know from the comic book. And I, that, that's a beautiful thing, and, and, and casting those roles is just as important as, as coming up with origins that may not exist. So that, that, that's, if viewers are going to really appreciate how far back we're going into an origin story. So in terms of how you split the show, obviously the serialization of the comic book is, you know, allows for that storytelling that obviously TV producers want more procedural. So right. when you're looking at how to tell these stories, what's your kind of, have you found your sweet spot yet for... No. What, what, no. Still, okay. still looking. And I've got to tell you, there was slight pressure, not much. I've got to say, Warner Brothers have been fantastic. Fox have been fantastic, uh, allowing us to push the boundaries a little bit and, and make a more adult-themed show. But um, no, I mean, we haven't found that balance yet. But I, I got to tell you, after they watched the pilot, it was so enthusiastic. It felt more like a slow-burning, massive start. And that comes first. Yeah. The procedural elements come because he's a police detective. Right. That's got to happen. But it's happening... I have to say organically, it's, it's not being forced upon us, or, or nor does it feel so when you watch it. Good, wonderful. All right, so Danny Cannon, what did uh, what what do we believe the takeaway from his interview is? He talked about uh, creating the world of Gotham, and yeah, so he talks he talks a little bit about just the tone of the show, and that even though you know there are kids in it it's not necessarily going to be a kid show and he's he's kept true i think to the cop drama and procedural drama but it's not like that all the time and he hasn't quite fit or or found his sweet spot for sort of chunking stories and and stopping them in certain points i feel like the way he was talking it feels like it's not going to be a smallville freak of the week um which is kind of what Flash may be going towards, um, just with a, a supervillain per episodes, but everything is very much longer and, and longer story arcs and everything. And, and, you know, someone asked, you know, why did you decide to bring this to the small screen and not the large screen? And he likes the freedom of, of going to work every day and, and just given longer to tell a story rather than just, you know, a cinematic experience, which would be over two hours. And that makes complete sense. I mean, there's a lot more you can tell within you know, 16, 45-minute episodes compared to one two-hour-long movie. So uh, the next one, uh, and then next we talked with Jada Pinkett-Smith, who's playing Fish Mooney, David Mazous, who's playing young Bruce Wayne, and Ben McKenzie, who is playing, as we know, James Gordon. So let's hear what they had to say. What's going on right now? Are you? Can you just give me a little laugh? That's a lawsuit. I can't do it. No, okay. Now this is actually Fish Mooney's best friend. Okay. Okay. The regulator. What is it? You know, she's a nice introduction to the character. Okay. What is it like being a female and a female villain in a, such a male-dominated world like Gotham? Awesome. Oh, it's amazing. And what I love most about it is that she can hold her own, you know, in that very male-dominated um, Gotham world. And I'm very excited to see what's going to happen because she definitely is um, bidding to take over Gotham. 
is that her ultimate goal? That's, that's her that's ultimate goal. And who, who does she see as her main adversaries into that? Right now, it's the Falcone family. Okay. Yeah. Who she has to work for. Right, exactly, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, and, and we'll start to uh, the backstory of how she got involved with the Falcone family, and that whole history will obviously roll out during the series. But um, that's right now, the Falcones are pretty much in control of everything. One of the great things about television is that you do get the opportunity, I mean, it's, it is a large cast of service, but hopefully that you get an opportunity to see why, why she's so ruthless, oh, what yeah. her motivations are. So how much um, and how quickly does that roll out so that we get to see why she's the woman that she is? I think as... I think as the as the series goes on, and we'll see what she wins, we'll start to see that background, that backstory really come out. Especially, I think probably the relationship with the family and how that all But yeah, what do you love about her? I love how flamboyant she is. I mean, she's this woman who she's created this mask for herself of what being fat. She's like a cross between Michelle de Blanco and Norma Desmond from Sunset Boulevard, right? So <laughs> Norma Desmond is kind of her mask. Rosal de Blanco is, they kind of share the same kind of background, the same kind of trauma, um, and that same kind of violent snap. Um, but I just love how, you know, she's created this persona of this fabulousness. <laughs> Herself, and she's not that at all. <laughs> um, and you know, maybe we'll get to see what's sitting underneath that wig. That's what I was going to ask. What is her weak spot that will make the audience connect with her and feel for her, other than just her villainy? I think that the thing that we see with with Fish is her vulnerability and the fact that she does love. I think that her her idea of what being trustworthy and what being loved is is a bit aberrated, um, and how she retaliates when she's betrayed. But this is a woman that definitely is looking to be loved and just. And you'll see that throughout the series of how she'll start to give her a heart in one area and she gets betrayed and then she'll give her heart in another area. And whether it's to a friend, whether it's to a man or whatever, you know, this is a woman that is about being connected, but she doesn't know how. She doesn't know how to do it. She just doesn't know how to do it. You You mentioned her best friend before. Can you tell me about um, how she uses it uh, to enforce uh, you know, the power? You know what? Have you seen the pilot? We have not. You're going to see it tonight? We hope so. I think when you see it tonight, you'll be able to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the actual prop? This is the actual prop. I had to send it tonight. Yeah, the actual one. All right. I had to clean it up a little. It was a little bloody. I had to clean it up, but this is the actual prop. Someone that tried to leak the pilot, you know, had to get exactly. on the receiving end. Okay, how are you? Davi, hello. Hello. So, we've been watching the trailer uh, for Gotham. It's been playing on the Comic-Con floor. And the thing that sticks out to me is when your parents saw that scream that you do, how many takes did that take? And what did you have to, like, you know, reach in to get out of you for that? Uh, people have been asking me that. I don't know. I mean, I guess it's just kind of part of being an actor to, to get that in with you. I don't really know what exactly I channeled. 
<laughs> just just trying to pretend, just trying to put myself in that situation. And uh, that was, by the way, that was the most probably the most fun scene I've ever shot in my whole career. Only four years of career. It's fun to see your parents gun down in yeah. front of you sometimes. No, it was a really fun and great uh, emotional scene for me to play. But also, it's... I lost my train of thought. Uh, it, it was... It's in a really... Uh, oh, yeah, right, okay. Uh, the stream, it was... I it, I had to, you know... If, if anybody, as a 12-year-old... I mean, if you go back... If any of you go back to where you were as a 12-year-old, imagine losing your parents... Who, who, and, and you see in like the two seconds of when, of right before they get shot, you see the rela Bruce Wayne's relationship with his parents. It's a really good relationship. You can see that immediately from the very first thing that, from the way that Bruce Wayne looks at his parents, uh, the way they look at him. You can see that their relationship's a really good relationship, and all of a sudden, they're just gone right before his eyes, like that. And anybody who goes through that will be really messed up for at least a couple of years until they get their. Um, bearings back and get to where they were back. So, you know, when you got the job and the producers were talking to you about well, so many different things that you could look at for research, you know, there's like films, there's Christian Bale, but all of that's kind of, you know, hard for you, you know, to, you don't need to be somebody else. So when they suggested things for you to kind of use as influence or some things so that you might be keep in mind when you're just choosing to play him? What did they talk to you, you about? They actually suggested not really to look, not, not to me directly, but to um, some other cast members that I heard um, that they did. Uh, they, they actually suggested that we didn't look mm -hmm. and have that much research because we're not playing I'm not playing Batman. Right. I'm playing Bruce Wayne. Right. I don't want to look at who Batman is. I mean, of course, it is my job throughout the series to, to show the audience how how Bruce Wayne gets from uh, a rich billionaire boy who has his parents killed before his eyes, 12-year-old kid, to Batman. Mm -hmm. That's my job throughout the series. How, what, what's going on in his mind? What, what makes him do that? What, what he reaches into himself to make that happen? Um, but So I do have to know who Batman is, um, in a sense, to know how to get there. But I'm not Batman, so I should I should know um, how many how many square feet are in the Batcave. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so how do you feel like you're kind of playing him? Are you just playing him like a kind of a sad 12 year old since you've lost this? You know, or is there any kind of um, place that you go to since you know you haven't kind of lived a life like this, which is good, but in a way where are you kind of going to in terms of inspiration? Well, the cool thing about this is that first of all, it's, it's Bruce Wayne. It's an iconic role. It's a role of a lifetime. You know, I left. My friends, my house, my... Cause the, I live in Los Angeles, and the show shoots in New York. Um, I left my friends, my family, my dogs, my my, uh, my mom. Well, my mom would be with me, sorry. Um, but my, my friends, my family, my school, my... Uh, everything uh, to, to go because it's such an amazing role. And I don't regret any of it. Uh, but the thing is, it's, it's not just playing such an iconic role. He's also a really interesting person. Like I said, if you go back to that... As an adult, Batman is a very driven person who doesn't have a lot of time for fun in his life, you know, when they say that that started after his parents died. But obviously, you know, you got to go from point A to the point B, because before your parents died, you were probably normal 12-year-old doing 12-year-old stuff. Yeah, billionaire. Yeah, you know, like... Um, so what's Bruce Wayne's, like, life now? Is he, you know, has he cut off all, like, joy in his life? You know, what is the day-to-day -day life of 12-year-old orphan Bruce Wayne? Uh, he, like I said, he's he's not having that much fun. He's not a fun boy to be around. 
per se. He's 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 dark and he's angry. He he's kind of he's testing himself to take taking himself to the limits. He's he's scaring himself. He's trying to push himself to conquer fear. And that's something that a 12-year-old probably shouldn't be doing. But that's what Bruce Wayne's doing. So is he is he a fun kid to be around? Is he a happy kid to be around? No. Just, it's, it's easier to say. I mean, obviously, he will have some of that in the future. You see that in the comics. Um, he does have some fun. He's not totally boring, dark person. But now, in this, in this chapter of Bruce Wayne's life, He's not a happy kid, no. So who do you get to spend most of your time working with? Because obviously Bruce's story is a separate from the police day-to-day kind of thing. So who do you get to spend most of your time working with? Most of my scenes are with uh, Sean Pertwee, mm-hmm. who plays uh, Alfred, mm-hmm. and sometimes Ben McKenzie, um, who plays uh, Jim Gordon. Right. And uh, both are really amazing people. Sean Pertwee, he's... Um, as soon as I met him, he, I knew that he was a dad. I just knew, because... Um, he, he has that certain quality about him, and he's such a, a, he's a really, really nice guy. He's, he's warm, he's smart, he's professional, and so everything that I just said about Sean stands for Ben as well. He, ben is also a really um, professional, good guy, solid, genuine person. Is Sean's version of Alfred harder on Bruce since he's going through um, you know what he's going through right now? Definitely. Yeah. Um, in this version of Alfred, he's not... I mean, Michael Caine in the Christian Bale movies, uh, you, you did see some of that... Um, you know, he had his own opinion. He wasn't so subject. He wasn't like, whatever Bruce Wayne says, I'll do. Uh, I think you may, might have seen a little bit more of that in the Michael Caine movies. Right. Uh, in this one, he... He's not really afraid of Bruce. There, at times, Alfred is Bruce Wayne's boss. At times, Bruce Wayne is Alfred's boss. Because in truth, Alfred is Bruce Wayne's guardian. So really, he's the boss now. Exactly. Once the parents exactly. die. Um, but their relationship is—they're always together. Uh, and they have a really strong relationship. He's—he really is his father figure um, in this. He's, he raises Bruce Wayne. Yeah. And, and also, since he's um, ex-marine. Um, I think they made uh, Sean in this in his version. He's a little bit rougher when his parents die. He's kind of telling him, "Keep your head up. Don't let anyone see you like that. You can't let the public see you cry. You're not. You're not a little boy. You're, you're going to be a man about this." And instead of you know any regular rational person would be like, "Oh my God, I'm so sorry for you." Right. But that's not what Alfred does, and that sends a message. You know, that's great. in a good way. Is the relationship dichotomy between Bruce and Alfred uh, difficult to transition from, you know, I guess before his parents died, Alfred was the butler, you know, Bruce could order Alfred around a little bit. Now that Alfred's the guardian, not only does Bruce have to deal with the adjustment of not having his parents, but the guy who he was used to bossing around is now his de facto parents. Uh, well, that's true. Um, now Alfred is his guardian. But, you know, Bruce Wayne's still the boss, and he's, he's still, he is still the boss. Uh, so... That's uh, good. I mean, I, he, he's, he, it's probably, it's not a huge transition. I mean, their relationship, for sure, uh, when the parents die, gets stronger uh, because the parents are kind of, he's spending less time with the parents because they're not there anymore, and he's spending way more time with Alfred besides when he's in school. Uh, so their relationship does get, definitely get stronger. I wouldn't say it changes all that much, though. Do you have a set? that you guys have worked on so far that has yes. made you go, oh my god, that's 
yeah, working well, on a Batman type project. <laughs> yeah, well, it is. The sets are amazing. Like everything you you see, uh, like even to the smallest detail, the lights aren't regular lights. They're Gotham lights. <laughs> the the bars aren't bars. They're Gotham bars. And um, with the, what I thought was really cool is that we uh, we didn't really have an. We, didn't, we had like two sets in the pilot, yeah. um, but the manor was not one of them. Okay. And we shot the manor at, in a house in Long Island. And when I came back, all of a sudden the manor was a set. And they recreated it. The set, I don't know who the set tester was, but did an amazing job. The, uh, it, it looks exactly the same, like down to the books. Wow. Like the books, the same exact books. It's really cool. Awesome. Yeah. Just about recording his character, how you view this guy. It's, uh, you know, he, he's he's the last hero uh, in a city that's, or he's the last good man in a city that's falling apart. Um, a city where sort of the references are sort of to like 1970s New York, kind of um, a lot of like nothing is really quite working the right way. Everyone's a little bit on the take, you know. The cops are a little corrupt, the judges are corrupt. The, Politicians are corrupt, so there's all these villains around and potential villains coming around. Um, and he's uh, he's an honest guy. He's a guy who's a war veteran. His dad was a DA, and he's just trying to make sense of the world and trying to keep it from falling apart. But he may not, he may not succeed. The relationship with Bruce Wayne, I assume, is going to be a significant part. Huge part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He meets he meets Bruce when when uh, Jim and Harvey are charged with uh, investigating the death of Thomas and Martha Wayne. Uh, he bonds with Bruce because uh, Jim uh, lost his father uh, when he was Bruce's age. Uh, his father died right in front of him in a horrific car accident. And so they form a bond, emotional you know, bond immediately um, when Jim confides in Bruce that he understands his pain. And they have a sort of a father-son father relationship uh, of sorts. Uh, at the same time, Bruce is being taken care of by Alfred Pennyworth, and um, Alfred is also an ex-soldier royal, royal forces, um, and so there are two contrasting philosophies that they're, they're, they're trying to sort of teach Bruce how to be a man in the world, but they differ on how to do that, so it's cool. How is Jim and Harvey, what's their relationship? It's, uh, it's, it's fun, it's a fun twist on that old sort of, you know, Two different partners, you know, different attitudes. Donald is like such, just such a great actor, um, and so perfect for this part because he can be both dangerous but also hilarious, and it's almost in the same line. He can do both. Um, Jim is a rookie. He, he when we meet him in the, in the GCPD, he's a war vet. His dad was a DA, so he's got a real sense of moral um, authority. Um, Harvey does not. Harvey. Uh, knows how the city works, he knows how to get along, he knows how to grease some palms, he knows how to shake down, you know, some folks if he has to. And so the, the relationship they have is kind of, um, uh, you know, they're both, have, they have a grudging respect for, for one another. And, and at the same time, they'll be at odds, serious odds, often. So it's fun. It's kind of like a, like a great, wonderful love affair that's also really turbulent. Okay. Not that I would know anything about that. <laughs> Danny was saying that he's not really sure they're still working on with the mixture of procedural, so the crime things that you guys are investigating yeah. versus um, the serialized nature of it and just character moments and mythology. So as you've been shooting so so far, what has it felt like in terms of helping to develop 
you know, have you gotten time to be able to have those character moments? Or is yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. The show, when you, uh, uh, I don't know, have you had a chance to see the pilot? Yeah. Okay. That, as you see in the pilot, it's not like we can just make the pilot that we've made and this goes straight into a right. procedural show. It just right. wouldn't work, right? right? Exactly. Which I love. Because right. I like procedurals and, and this will have a procedural element. We'll have a crime most episodes, if not every episode, that Harvey and I are trying to solve. Um, that crime will almost always tie into the larger themes of what we're talking about. And and and, and those things, those are there are multiple things we're talking about. One of them is a city completely falling apart, and who's gonna who's gonna emerge with the power, right? It's a massive power grab because the Waynes were kind of helping to keep the city from falling apart. They were good people with real money, doing good things. They're gone, right. so it's chaos. Um, uh, so there'll be a crime each week, most weeks, and 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 there will be the serialized storylines, which is everything from. Oswald's rise to become a penguin. Fishes, you know, trying to figure out how to how to kind of um, make her way up. The, the, the crime families there. Um, Jim and Barbara's relationship, which is, you know, going to be rocky at times. Um, it's all those things, and we try to do it in an hour. It's challenging, but so far we're pulling it off. I mean, I you know from the scripts I read, I haven't seen that. We're only on episode four, so... So, so you're not in, like, a one-off territory yet where just the character gets a whole episode or you guys are still just no, in well, establishing place? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you have to, obviously, lay a lot of right. foundation here. Um, and, and the world is so big. You've got to decide... And I think Bruno is really brilliant about this. Bruno and the rest of the writers really figuring out what, what story we're going to focus on initially and what we're not because you can't do everything at once. And that is... It's, it's look, it's incredibly challenging because fans of, of, of this universe are invested in all of the characters. They want to see all of them all the time. You just can't do it. Maybe it's been off. Will you see him deal with any of the effects of being a veteran? Yes. And and I think that's... Um, I was just talking to the Armed Forces uh, Network. Um, that's really important to me. I did a USO tour a couple of years ago uh, with the cast of Southland and um, Johnny Galecki from Big Bang Theory. We went over to Japan. Um, it's really important important to me that we try to be authentic to the spirit of that, um, uh, that he's seen some stuff and, 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 and he's, 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 he's a good man, but, he's, but he's, he knows that the world can be tough and people can be cruel and, and he's trying not to be. Is there a feeling of being part of this sort of this legacy now, that from now on, you're now part of this giant thing? Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I don't think you can, you know, sort of say it. You can say it to, oh, this is probably what's going to happen, or sort of think it, but until you're here, I mean literally here at Comic-Con, do you realize, oh, right, the train has left the station. We are, <laughs> we are on our way to somewhere. I don't know where we're going. I bought a ticket. I don't know what, where I'm going, but it's going to be an interesting ride. Hopefully a long one. We'll see, but I think so. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. It's, a, it's, like a, it's kind of a weird dream. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Did you have any concerns or worries taking on an iconic role? Like yeah, that? for sure. I mean, you know, you don't want to F it up, basically. I mean, <laughs> you know, fans are, are, are really intense about this stuff. I understand why. Um, I would be, too. Um, uh, yeah, you don't want to, you know, you want to do it right. Otherwise, you're, well, yeah, otherwise you're Wonder Woman or whatever. Failed TV pilot was that I was like, really? Ooh, boy. You want to do it right now? I'm gonna get I'm gonna so much grief now from somebody from somebody who made Wonder Woman. Yeah, you're 100 percent right. Yeah, well, it was bad. 
bad. So bad. <laughs> um, so, yeah. But, you know, that's where this all comes back to, for me, to, to, to really to Bruno. You know, Bruno and I really do see the world similarly in many ways. And, and so his sensibility is perfect for Gotham. It's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not, you know, kind of fairy tales and, and, and you know, um, it's, not, it's not for kids, exactly. I mean, there are kids in it, and I think young, younger people will like it, but I wouldn't recommend children under, you know, a certain age watch the show because it's, it's intense. It's an intense show. All right, so what do we believe the takeaway from the cast is? Well, when asked about uh, what it does it feel like to take on a role as iconic as Batman, uh, Davi was quick to remind us, well, technically I'm not playing Batman, I'm playing Bruce Wayne, so that right. was very freeing then. But uh, when he was talking about Bruce Wayne's state of mind, it, it brought in mind the whole uh, the, the Kubler uh, uh, philosophy of uh, the five steps of grief. And it sounds like Bruce Wayne is very, very much in the anger phase. And he mentioned that he's going to be acting out a lot. And we saw a little bit of that in the pilot. And he talked a lot about his relationship with Alfred and how it's kind of in a weird transition point where Alfred's in charge of him, but technically Bruce is still. Davi said the exact phrase, you know, sometimes Alfred's the boss, sometimes Bruce is the boss, mm -hmm. which we also saw a little bit in the pilot that night. So, yeah, uh, that was certainly interesting. And he, you know, while he did say that um, he has, you know, it's free not to think of it as him playing Batman. Uh, he said at the um, Hall H thing that night that um, if the show hopefully goes on until he's 25, then he gets to play Batman as he crossed his fingers to audience laughter. Yeah. Yeah. As for, you know, the other ones, it was just, you know, what, what their character is like, which I, I felt like <clears throat> it was good to get an understanding of what their take was. Jada Pinkett Smith, she brought her, her actual bat. She brought her bat? <laughs> yeah. I got, I got to touch it. Yes. She was sitting right next to Josh. Um, the fact that, you know, she seems so strong in all of these clips and even in that, in that first episode, you, you see her really being this villainous, but there is this vulnerability that's going to be developed. And even though she's working for the Falcone family, ultimately that's her, her greatest rival, which is pretty interesting. And as for Mackenzie, it's nice to hear that they're going to not only develop his relationship with Bruce, but mostly with Harvey. And I think you start to see that in that first uh, episode. And since he was a veteran in a war, they're also going to develop or talk about what those ramifications are and, and have backflashes, I think, with that. That was Gotham. Let's, hear, let's move over to another comic creator. Uh, let's hear what uh, James Tinian had to say about Batman Eternal. Hey, this is Stella for the Batman Universe. I'm here with James Tynan. Yep. And he is the current writer, or one of them, on Batman Eternal. Are you Batmaned out right now? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, no, no, no. <laughs> Batman out in the best possible way. I love, I love this character. You can't get sick of writing in Gotham. Gotham, like, I've said this over and over, but Gotham is the best toy box in the entire comics industry. And that just makes, like, you don't, you never stop being excited, excited when you write a sequence with the Batmobile and everything. And I have these conversations with Scott Snyder all the time where, you know, it, it's like, oh, maybe after this story we're done. And then all of a sudden it's like, we have another idea. And it's like, oh, that could open up all of these other stories and all of that, so on, so on. It's like... You know, there's no, there's nothing more fun than Gotham City and Batman, and I want to be writing, writing this character as long as they'll let me. 
So there's a good group working creatively together, and it's not just you and Snyder anymore. You've added some other people. What's it like? What's the process like working with more than one person? I mean, it's been very seamless. Scott and I came up with a massive storyline, and we brought in people whose work we like and uh, and people who we genuinely trust and get along with. Uh, there's never been a clashing of the egos or anything. Uh, everyone's been working towards building this into the best story possible, and we've been working so far ahead. Uh, like I, I was just saying it, uh, to, to one of my friends, it was exactly a year ago that uh, we had our first story meeting uh, where we went over the first uh, series Bible for Batman Eternal. And, uh, you know, even though it wouldn't come out, issue one didn't come out until April. By the time October came around, we had the first uh, four or five issues completely in the bag. Uh, that and that's really you know how we got started and how we dug into this monster and you know I thought I was sure that this was going to be the most unwieldy thing I thought I was signing my death warrant when I agreed to do it even though I was super excited about the story and working with all these people I just thought it would be uh, so much time and energy that would make me go insane but the fact of the matter is it was an incredible experience and continues to be every single day like yeah so we saw a, a tease of the end, or sort of what's to come in Batman earlier on, and then we also we started off Eternal with basically like the end scene almost. Did you really write the ending fuller before actually coming back and starting at the beginning? Did you like just go, let's, this is how it's going to end, now let's go backwards? Actually, it was after the first three issues were written when uh, I was sort of looking at that first script and I was like, what is the one thing it's missing? Because we started with such a huge moment there uh, with uh, the train crash and Gordon's arrest. We wanted, but there needed to be something extra, something that really told everyone that how big this story was right from the start. And we had that the idea of the image of Bruce on top of the... Uh, the new Beacon Tower, which we had come up with as an idea of, like, you see it, it, like, fully built in that moment, but then over the course of the series, in the backgrounds, you see it slowly uh, building up in the background. So you know every time you see the Beacon a little more built, we're one step closer to that to the end. Uh, and little things like that just make it really, really exciting uh, to be a part of. I don't know. Yeah. There's a huge cast of characters, maybe some that people aren't expecting, like Joker's daughter and Spectre and everything. What made you decide to use the characters that you've used in, in the manner that you've used them? Well, we were very interested in drawing characters together that we really haven't seen lots of interactions with before. And then also bringing in characters who would totally shake things up in uh, in terms of the lives of those characters. Like Julia Pennyworth, that, uh, Pennyworth, that was, you know, that's a huge piece that completely throws off uh, everything in Alfred's life and what he's been uh, trying to do. And that, uh, you know, it makes it makes for a whole host of new st- story possibilities. So that's something we really, really uh, wanted to play with. But then other things like, you know, we'd never seen uh, Harper Rowe interact with Tim Drake. We've right. never seen, and then someone as scientifically minded as Batwing pairing him with the specter of being, a, you know, magic and mystery. That, that seemed like a perfect uh, fit as well in the way that it was so imperfect. It was so strange and random. And, you know, we wanted to, and then, uh, we have Jason and Barbara going off on their own adventures, and they, like, those are characters who really, in their whole histories, don't have a lot of interaction. They're probably the two most core members of the Bat family who you never really see talking to one another. Right. 
so that that was really uh, the big thing, and uh, you know it, that that's what drew us to pair those characters up and uh, bring those characters in. I want to talk a little bit about Jason Bard. I yeah. love that you brought him in, and he came in at you know a really good time because James Gordon was about to be taken away. And for the most part, he seems like a good guy. But now you kind of see that he'll play a little bit by his own rules if it's you know for the benefit of Gotham. Was it important to you to make him slightly different than the by-the-book Jim Gordon that we've known for all Ab these years? Absolutely. And I mean, Jason Bard's story, there's a reason he's the first character who shows up aside from that prologue. It's his voice that opens uh, Batman Eternal in the present. It, it, his story is crucial to the entire year-long arc. And, uh, you know, there are lots of twists and turns in that story that you, you're, you're not going to see coming until they hit. But he, you know, he is doing what he believes is right, and he's going to do it the way he thinks is the best way to do that. And that's not always going to align with the way Batman uh, views what's right, as we saw in, uh, uh, I believe that was issue 12 or 14. Yeah, I think 14. Yeah, 14, yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, like, that. that's what we're going to see. You're teasing us a little bit with the relationship between... Bard and Vicki Vale, is that something you're just gonna, you know, they just have some chemistry, or is there gonna be something more solid there? Oh, I think there's definitely something very solid there, and you're just gonna have to keep reading to see uh, how solid it is exactly, and what a relationship like that, uh, what, you know, what strength that gives each of, each of them, and uh, also what, what weaknesses does it set up in one another. As a Barbara Gordon fan, they had a relationship, you know, in the Bronze Age. Do you think Jason Bard and Barbara Gordon are ever going to meet when she gets back from Brazil? They are definitely going to have a very climactic meeting, and uh, the the content of which you're just going to have to see play out on uh, on the page. <laughs> okay, sounds good. James Jr. He's revealed himself, which was a big moment because that caused a lot of issues. Do you think? Batgirl is going to find out that James Jr. is in existence, or is this just a secret sort of knowledge only for his father? I think Batgirl's definitely going to get wind, especially because of, uh, you know, Batman is aware that James Jr. is out there, and uh, that definitely shakes things up a bit. But the thing, the fact of the matter is, is uh, James Jr.'s role in that moment was to play a kind of devil figure to his father. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be blunt in the fact that he's not one of, you know, the core figures in the series, but we wanted to bring him in in this crucial moment to really plant some very dangerous seeds in his father's head. Uh, and those characters are so... The, a conversation between those two characters is just so much fun to write. And, uh, yeah. Was James Gordon going to walk out? I mean, I think you have to... Add, that, that's a question you have to ask yourself. We've debated it. It's hard. It's a hard answer. Uh, honestly, I think that I don't think he's ready to completely throw everything away. Yeah, he he's Jim Gordon. He's made of sterner stuff than that. But the fact that he uh, was put in a position where even for a second he'd consider it just shows how how hard this whole experience has been on him, uh, and how uh, and how dispirited he is in his own abilities and uh, you know his faith in the system. Okay, final question, what can we expect from you after Eternal? Any other Bat books, or maybe during Eternal? Well, you're just going to have to wait and see, but we are, opening the, we are opening the stage for a whole host of stories you've never seen before in Gotham City, 
and you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, I I continue to have some hand in those stories. So, okay. But you know. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Stella. So, what was the takeaway from that interview? Oh. Honestly, it, to me, when I listened to it, the only thing I really got out of it was. Yeah, we're we're making eternal keep going. It's gonna be great. We're telling crazy stories. Yeah, and he would he wouldn't talk about you know what's um, in store at least for him. What's he gonna be doing creator wise? It was interesting to kind of get a sneak peek into how the creators all work together since this is a weekly series and there's more than one person doing it. Did I ask about James Jr., the ramifications of that? I think that was a that was a big tease because I asked, is Batgirl going to find out? And, and he said that it was important for James Jr. to reveal himself to James, his father. But, you know, Batgirl may find out, but it was more important for the father side of that. And that will have big ramifications. All right. And then finally, our last interview that we have is, in my opinion, probably one of the better ones that we got mm-hmm. out. It was a very unexpected interview because it wasn't planned ahead of time uh we still had a chance to interview the creators behind the new new backroll direction that's happening in october cameron stewart brendan fletcher and babs tar so let's hear what they had to say about what we can expect from backroll come october hey this is stella and i'm here with Cameron stewart brendan fletcher babs tar the new creative team of bad girl I'm super excited. I think a lot of people are super excited. Now, we hear a lot of buzzwords like young and hip in kind of some of these interviews. How are you going to make this run of Babs distinct from what we had seen with Stephanie Brown, who was also young and hip and and taking on this school? Kind of... (laughs) (laughs) What I call that is the Cameron Stewart deflection move. (laughs) Um, Well, look, um, Stephanie Brown is is a... is a younger character in the New 52, right? So, um, I think that, um, I think what we're doing is we're trying to honestly portray Barbara Gordon, uh, the Barbara, sort of iconic Barbara Gordon, the one that we all came to know and love years ago, uh, in the Batgirl suit at 21 years of age. And we don't want to be hamstrung by the portrayal of Stephanie, um, pre-New 52, because if we're all going to be honest about it, it was echoing what who Barbara was right. in a lot right. of ways, in spirit, in tone. That was, Stephanie was, Stephanie was great because she felt like Barbara coming mm-hmm. back again in the Batgirl outfit. So I think that, I think that ripple is what a lot of us are sort of, and I recognize it, because mm-hmm. I love Stephanie, but I think, I think we feel that as a ripple now because there were years of Stephanie. Um, but uh, Stephanie is around in the new 52 so now fans following these stories can see who stephanie is right now and they can see how that contrasts with who barbara is and i think that's all going to make sense you know there's an age difference there these girls are five years apart stephanie's only 16 barbara's 21 um they're going to be very different but you'll see how how um I, I think you'll see how that's all going to make sense. I'm glad to hear it. How are you going to develop Babs outside of her costume? Because for the most part, we've really seen her as Batgirl. But how are we going to see her as Barbara Gordon? <laughs> um, I'm going to try to stylize her and make her super hip. Uh, I've been telling people in other interviews today that um, I'm going to try to give each character their own style based on their personalities and what their day-to-day life is. Like, Barbara's going to be... Uh, 
she's going to be busy with her thesis and she's going to be fighting crime so she's not going to have time to be like the fashionista and she's going to have cute outfits but they're going to be more, more practical and like not very flashy like she's going to be cute but it's going to it's going to make sense with her character and I'll have other characters that might be older and more sophisticated and they'll they'll be you know they'll have their own specific styles and um, maybe we'll even do like OOTD posts where it's like outfit of the day and like in this issue Babs wore this and you can go pick it up here and it'll be you know another extra layer to, to give kids more treats to like who reads it and gets really involved but we're gonna try to um, I think you're gonna see like her get developed outside of that suit and that's gonna be like really fun to see from a story standpoint yeah. we're, we're in, uh, the initial idea is that she's sort of wants to get away from Gotham and she's sick of all the darkness and the misery and so on she's like I'm out and she moves to Burnside to kind of start over and go back to grad school and almost kind of try and take a step away from Batgirl and be like I kind of don't want to do this anymore but because of who she is she gets pulled back into it constantly and new things she can't help herself it's like new new problems arise and she's got to get back into the costume but we're trying to give her not just villains to fight but also problems the kind of problems that a 21 year old girl moving to a new part of the city might have so you know she's got her schoolwork and she's got struggling to pay rent and she's got you know tensions with her roommates and she's got all, you know all those kind of things that people that people struggle with so she's got She's really kind of got problems coming at her from all sides, and one of the things, if I if I can mention a, a you know a competitor, but one of the things that we talked about was a lot with Spider-Man and the idea of like early Spider-Man stuff with like Peter Parker had like the weight of the world on him and it was always problems but they're always sort of realistic problems Mm -hmm. it was like you know he's like god I can't make rent and Mary Jane's mad at me and I gotta get medication to Aunt May and all that kind of thing and we were sort of thinking along those sort of lines of like give her the give her the weight of the world but in sort of realistic relatable problems and then she also has to fight you know these villains that are popping up as well. Okay, final question. One of my favorite relationships in all of the DCU is Babs and her father, and it's kind of been put through a lot of trials and, and heartbreak quite recently, actually. Can you tell us if you're developing anything with that? Are they going to get back to the way they were pre-New 52? And uh, That's a marked question. Yeah, I, I, can, I can answer that one. Um, because of events that happen in Batman Eternal, is a, is a big inspiration of why Babs decides to move where she does and try to get a fresh start. And so uh, definitely Jim is a huge part of her life and influenced her character and who she is. But at the same time, she is 21. And as a, as a 21-year-old 20, person, she's like, you know what? I need to sort of be by myself and sort of grow up a little bit. And so he's there. He's in her life, of course, always. But I don't. there won't be a lot of sort of development between them in this book, at least in the first arc, for sure, because it's very much about Barbara establishing herself, so we'll be okay. focusing on That's that. That's why we sure. didn't want to use a lot of the existing Batman villains, is because we didn't want to have her fighting the villains of Batman, her mentor. We didn't want to have her be, you know, always in the shadow of Bruce and Commissioner Gordon and so on. She's got to be her own thing, and we're developing a life around her, for her. Okay. Hey, any killer moth in the works? Is he gonna make a little play? Uh, the classic? Every time. Every time like, they, their apartment isn't the nicest, and every time they leave the windows open, Uh-oh. there's a moth. Okay. <laughs> Somebody's gotta kill it. Okay. Right.
Right. <laughs> okay. No, we're we're actually making a, a, a kind of a, a deliberate choice to not have a lot of guest stars okay. in it, um, and and kind of separate it from Gotham because okay. she's she's like I'm I'm out I'm leaving Gotham mm-hmm. behind, and so in order to reinforce that in the content of the book, it's like she's got new new villains to fight, new whatever, and and it's it's very much a step away from that, and you know who's. T- in the future, at some point, who's to say it might be story appropriate to bring something in? But for now, you know, I wouldn't expect to see any guest stars from okay. from the other Bat books. That is fine. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much no for taking the time. All right. So Stella, being the you know Batgirl expert here, <laughs> yeah. What do you think is the best thing about what they had to say? I think you know, and all of this st- this stuff came out. You're you're going to be a, a one of two sides. You're either excited for this new direction, or you're you're hesitant, and you're also sad because Gil Simone is off. And I think everything that they said hopefully brought those two groups together because it really showed their dedication. I mean, even off, I didn't really get. I only got three questions, so I couldn't talk about everything. But even off audio you know I talked to them and the fact that they're researching pre-new 52 Babs to really get a sense of the character shows me how devoted they are and and just you know they want to pay the series what it was before they want to pay service to that but also who Babs was and who she is currently and they want to you know they want to make her distinct from from Stephanie Brown. I like the fact that they said, you know, Stephanie Brown was Barbara Gordon. You know, she was kind of modeled after her. So this is going to be how Barbara Gordon is. To hear that they're going to be focusing on Barbara Gordon, which is something that I've complained about so much because it was it was just this huge backroll and friends, but friends was like this huge font because it was all about them. I mean, they've they stated we're not going to bring in a lot of guest stars. And I think it's great that we're focusing on that character. If people are nervous about the costume and the art style I really feel that they shouldn't because I think I mean they, they kind of tease the story that you know she's going to be finding these pieces of apparel throughout but it really seems like she is making that costume her own and she's really becoming Batgirl so and they're not hand-me-downs from Batman so I, I just think people should rest easy and really keep an open mind because I honestly think that we're, we're about to, to go into this great era of Batgirl and, and I really trust these creators and, and they were wonderful to talk to and I feel like they've got a handle on who Barbara Gordon is. Well, one thing I was just going to say was throughout the conven- the you know, from the time that it was first announced that the, the new creative team was announced from throughout the entire convention – the one thing that I have to say that I'm I was probably most excited for about this creative team is their enthusiasm for the character. It really generally feels like they are extremely enthusiastic about taking on this project. And that's one of the things that I think we, we all know that I have had problems with Gail Simone. I'm not the only one here who's had problems with Gail Simone's run on Batgirl. But the real realistic thing is it really just doesn't feel like she has the enthusiasm that she used to have. There's it doesn't feel like it's the same type of stories that, you know, Gail Simone wrote in Birds of Prey with Barbara Gordon when she was in when she was Oracle. It's 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 a different character. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that the darkness had bled so far into the other bat books when the new 52 began part of it's that part of it is i think she's just been writing the character for so long that she just doesn't have the enthusiasm that she once did you know having you know guest star after guests or i should say not guest star but have after having a villain every a new villain every three months 
and none of the villains are are you know characters that are pre-existing. They're all every single one of them is brand new. It gets old, and it just feels like she's trying to create. She was trying to create something inside the Batgirl book that was her own, but it was these villains. These villains were her fresh ideas, but yet there was no real fresh ideas for Batgirl. So I think with this new creative team coming onto the book, their enthusiasm is kind of like leaking into me. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be the first to admit when I first saw the, the art design for the character, the first thing that I thought was, wow, this is very, very different. But knowing that everything is going to change for the character, as far as like where she lives, her costume, everything that she is, you know, about right now in Gail Simone's run is going to change. I think it's, it's perfect that the art's changing. And I think that if it is the, the bright book amongst all the dark books, I mm-hmm. think that's exactly the book it needs to be. I was very on the fence about the new direction when it was announced. Not that I've liked what's come before, but I was hearing in what I thought was a lot of buzzwords, like Batgirl's going to be young and going to be in a new neighborhood with young people and she's taking selfies so I was very apprehensive, but I went with Stella and Don to this uh, Batgirl appreciation group meeting that the DC creators had put together. And in hearing the creative team talk about it, it's like what Stella said. They were very enthusiastic. They were talking about pulling elements, you know, pre-Flashpoint and doing research that uh, they sold me on this new run to the point where um, I'm enthusiastic and hopeful for it as well. All right. So with that, that is actually all of the interviews we had. Hopefully you are still listening. <laughs> you have made it to the end because we really saved that back row one to the end because honestly out of a lot of the projects, that is one of the newer projects that has been announced and it's one of the projects that you probably haven't heard nearly as much as compared to Lego Batman 3 or Gotham or Batman Assault on Arkham or Batman 66. So hopefully you enjoyed our coverage of San Diego Comic-Con 2014. Once again, thank you to Stella, Don, and Josh for covering all the events. Uh, Be sure to check out thebatmanuniverse.net for all the latest news related to comics, movie, TV, merchandise, video games, and every all the other podcasts we have to offer. Uh, Backlog Oracle, the Batman Universe specials, the Batman Universe podcast, the Batman Universe commentaries, the Batman Universe comic podcast, Taking Flight, Robin, Everyone Loves the Drake, Bat Fans. Tons of podcasts over on the website, so be sure to check all those out. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Join our Facebook group to chat with other Bat fans. You can email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net or backroll to oracle at gmail.com. And with that, be sure to leave us reviews on iTunes, both for Backroll Oracle and the Batman Universe interviews. With that, that is everything for this episode. This is Dustin. This is Stella. This is Josh. And you have been listening to the Batman Universe interviews and Backle to Oracle. We'll see you guys next time.
people that had gone through the press line, they weren't sure what to do. Like people like um, Barbara, the Barbara Keen person, Ariana yeah, Richards. Aaron Richards. Aaron. They, uh, yeah. Aaron. Yeah, Ariana Richards was was Lex from Jurassic Park. I, I confused the two, and they're both blonde. Um, like the, 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 they're they're taking they're taking her. Oh, peek into the how the mind of Josh Batoni works. <laughs> what just happened? I, I muted, oh, okay. so you so you probably lost a lot of background noise. <laughs> yes, I did. I thought the call got hung up. Let's jump into another comic creator. Uh, so- Ugh, Dan Slot. <laughs> no, I did not say Dan Slot. He thought I was. I was up, about but... to say Zack Snyder again because on my paper it, it's just says Snyder, and I oh. keep saying I keep thinking it wrong. Did you know that all these years you've been mispronouncing it, and it's Tynan? Tiny. I know. Yeah. You just go yeah. along with it. No, I, see, I the thing that. is, like, I found that out uh, when I went to C2E2 in, uh, this, this past year because he was there, and I had them all ahead of time say their names so that I could use it for the promo. Yep. And when he said it, I was like, oh, crap, I had been pronouncing it wrong all this time. But then again, how would you ever know? Really, unless you are watching an interview where someone actually is talking to him. Yeah. So... Okay. It's his fault. Anyway, so we... All right, yeah. so that was basically Gotham. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got just a couple more interviews to go over. The first one, let's talk about... Uh, let, let's hear what James Tanyan the third had to say. He's the third? Uh, He's the fourth! Jesus. <laughs> I don't even bother saying we, we, also, we also spoke to his father, the third. <laughs> oh. uh, right. All right, Stella, so what was the takeaway from that interview? Do you remember? I wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> oh.